we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-889. Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. 
All right, and welcome aboard to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on SHR Media Lone Star Daily News on BTR, Pundit Press, Kinetic Hi-Fi, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, the radio chick, Annie. And today we have a special guest co-host, retired Captain Ryman Shove. Welcome back, Ryman. How are you today? It is a wonderful day, and I'm really excited about your show. You've got some uh, folks that are going to hit it out of the park today, I believe. Oh, man, we've got an exciting lineup. We're going to start off the show with retired Brigadier General Robert S. Spaulding III. Can't forget the third. Uh, he's also a doctor, uh, and he's got an exciting book out called Stealth Wars that will really open your eyes on what is going on between the Trump administration the United States, the rest of the world versus China. Uh, it's an exciting book. A lot of this I've talked about in previous shows, but he just reinforces everything I've been speaking about all these years and just puts it in a nutshell so well. Uh, that's going to be followed by the managing editor of the Washington Examiner. Uh, you've seen him up on uh, a lot of the Sunday talk shows, Michael Barone. Um, I believe... Was it with Brit Hume? He was on a panel uh, years ago before Brit Hume passed away. Uh, excellent author. He's got a book out about the political parties, how they change and how they really don't. Followed by uh, John O'Connor, uh, who has a book out. Believe it or not, there's still more to tell about Watergate and what is going on with the Washington Post, the reporters that broke the story. Oh, man, it is some slimy stuff, and it really <laughs> Make you hate the Washington Post all the more. And then we're going to finish it off uh, with gunnery sergeant retired Jesse Jane Duff. And she's she's all over the place. She's with Women for Trump. Uh, she's got her own uh, uh, website as well. And she also acts as a spokesperson for the Trump administration. So we're going to have a lot of fun with her. And I'm telling you, Ryman, it is an action-packed show. I know I'm looking forward to it. I've been uh, looking at all the speakers and their backgrounds and listening to some of their little posts, uh, some of the posts that they've put out, especially the Brigadier General you're going to have on today, and it's going to be a fast three hours, I have no doubt. Oh, no, no, no problem on that one. <laughs> so if anyone's looking for Curtis, Curtis is on a book signing today, so we have retired Captain Ryman show up with us. But, Ryman, you know we start off um, – with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes I can't always find enough information on these. Uh, so you have to really, really dig to find stuff. And of course, I have to put this together from various sources. And this is coming from the Fallen on the Military Times, uh, from News Channel 10, from ABC 7 out of Amarillo, Texas. And the final part is from the High Plains Observer. So today's dedication is going to go out to Sergeant Cameron Medic, uh, who died on January 17th of this year while serving during Operation Freedom's Sentinel. And it starts off, Sergeant Cameron Medic died January 17th, 2019, serving during Operation Freedom's Sentinel. He was 26 of Spearman, Texas. He died in Landstahl, Germany, of injuries sustained from small arms fire on January 13th of this year in the Baghis province of Afghanistan. 
He was an Army Ranger serving with Company A, 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, based at Joint Base Lewis-McCord in Washington. This was his second deployment in support of NATO's Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan. Medic was an Army Ranger serving with Company A, 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Sergeant Cameron Medic is one of America's precious sons. The entire nation should strive to emulate the warrior, patriot, and husband that Cameron was. This was Colonel Brandon Techmeyer, the commander of the 75th Ranger Regiment, he said in a statement. The 75th Ranger Regiment will forever honor Sergeant Cameron Nettick and his family, will forever be a member of our Ranger family. A native of Spearman, Texas, Nettick enlisted in the Army on November 14th of 2014. He completed one station unit training as an infantryman, the basic airborne course, and ranger assessment and selection at Fort Benning, Georgia. Following successful completion of RASP, Medic was assigned to Company A, 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, where he served as a machine gunner, automatic rifleman, gun team leader, and most recently as a fire team leader. His awards and decorations include the Purple Heart, the Joint Service Commendation for Combat, the Army Achievement Medal of Two Oak Leaf Clusters, the Afghanistan Campaign Medal with Campaign Star, the Ranger Tab, the Parachutist Badge, the Expert Infantry Badge, and the Combat Infantryman Badge. The Bagus province where Medic was wounded has been one of the more stable regions in northwest Afghanistan, according to the press. In recent years, however, anti-government groups like the Islamic State, or ISIS, an Afghan offshoot, have developed a foothold in some of the remote districts. One after another, Motorcycles and police vehicles made their way through highways and back roads of the Texas Panhandle, escorting the remains of Army Sergeant Cameron Medic. The man gave his life for this country, said Kevin Anthony, one of the motorcycle escorts. He served his country well, and I consider it an honor to be able to ride with a fellow brother and escort him back to his hometown. Sergeant Medic was the first U.S. military fatality in Afghanistan this year. He died in the German military hospital after sustaining injuries from small armed fires. After arriving at Amarillo's Wick Husband Airport, members of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Stand for Leos, and Patriot Guard riders escorted him through the panhandle. Borges Stinnett and finally his hometown of Spearman. It was an honor to be able to support him and his family the way he went over and sacrificed his life for us. It was amazing, said Jeremy Helm, one of the motorcycle escorts. The county sheriff says the showing of support from people throughout the route, lining up with their flags at at, at this ready, is a testament to the panhandle's patriotism. Panhandle people are just very good people, conservative, patriotic, and it also renews your faith in humanity, 
said Hansford County Sheriff Tim Glass. For one of the motorcycle escorts, seeing the people lining the roads was an emotional experience. It brought tears to my eyes every time we rode past a town and all the supporters came out and stood with us and let us know that they were behind this gentleman who gave his life, said Anthony. The small town will never forget the sacrifice of their soldier made. He was the tip of the spear, they say, a soldier at heart and a hometown hero from Spearman, Texas. It's a solemn reminder hitting close to home that freedom does not come free. Sergeant Medic was laid to rest in Spearman on Saturday, February 2nd. From the Amarillo ABC 7, the Texas Panhandle mourned the death of Spearman Native Army Ranger, Purple Heart recipient, husband, and soon-to-be dad, who was killed in combat in Afghanistan. ABC 7 News spoke with friends of 26-year-old Sergeant Cameron Medic. This is Vicky's biggest fear for years now that he has been serving, as I'm sure this is most parents' fear, said Hartzell. Vicky is Cameron Medic's mom, and Liz Hartzell works with her at the Hansford Manor Nursing Home. Hartzell has known the family for several years. I've known Cameron for all this life since he was in school here. He was a big football player and very, very athletic, just a really cool kid. Those who knew Cameron said serving and protecting was his calling. Cameron was a police officer, I believe, before he joined the forces, said Hartzell. Yet he was determined to do something much bigger, and that was to serve our country, one of his classmates, Audrey Lola, tells ABC7. Even though this news is tragic and super sad, we should remember to feel very proud because Cameron took the ultimate sacrifice for us. And that was something he wasn't afraid to do, Lola said. And finally, from the High Towns High Plains Observer, Spearman High School has established a Sergeant Cameron A. Medic Scholarship in order to honor the memory of one of their former links and recognize the heroic sacrifice he made for each and every one of us. The hope with this scholarship is that every year, the seniors will have an opportunity to discover the meaning of many of our nation's greatest symbols and truly reflect upon who makes our freedom possible. We believe for years to come, generations of lynx and lynxettes will be able to reflect upon the essence of whom Cameron was as a lynx, an army ranger, a husband, son, brother, and friend. Any group or individual who would like to contribute to the Sergeant Cameron A. Medic Memorial Scholarship may send their contributions to the Spearman High School. Attention, Krista Baird at 403 East 11th Avenue, Spearman, Texas, 79081. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant's, uh, Sergeant Medic. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they firefighters, law enforcement, or emergency responders. We also dedicate this show to all the military that have served in this nation from its birth through today and into its future. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. 
May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends
right, Todd Allen Harrington. My name is American. You can find that at ToddAllenShow.com. And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media Lone Star, Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Ah, oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick. And my guest co-host, it's not Curtis today, it happens to be retired Captain Ryman Shove. Ryman, we're ready to rock and roll, are you? Hey, anytime I can be on with the radio chick, you know it's going to be a good day. <laughs> well, in a few few minutes, I'm going to be ready to call my uh, guest in a few minutes. Uh, but just before we start that, I'm going to put, because anyone's watching up on Facebook, I'm going to put a picture up there. Uh, I want you guys to all take a look at it. And this has been circulating in the news. Uh, yesterday, the Democrats had a little powwow with President Trump in, at the White House. And I am posting this picture up right now onto uh, the YouTube uh, video so people can take a look at it. It's where Nancy Pelosi is standing there with her fellow Democrats around her uh, addressing Trump and his uh, cabinet members there, his staff. And if you take a really good look at this picture, she's standing there. She's wagging her finger at the president of the United States. And everyone on her side of the table all have an aggressive stance as they're doing this. You know, their arms, of course, they're hunched over. You can see one whole side of the table is all aggressive. And then you look at Trump's side of the table. He's sitting back there. It's like it's a day in a park. You know, he's having a good old time. And they are so relaxed and so calm. And it's amazing. If you remember a few years back when we had President Obama, a certain Republican governor from New Mexico, uh, Martinez, invited Obama down to the border. And as she's talking to him, she's photographed pointing her finger at him like she's wagging her finger at him. She got called a bigot. She got called a racist. She got called every name in the book. How dare you disrespect the president of the United States? He's the president. Don't you know that? You're a bigot. But if Pelosi does this to Trump, it's perfectly fine. She's being strong. She's being a leader. She's she's doing everything right. The hypocrisy in this is just so amazing, Ryman. I know. I'm, I'm right along there with you. Um, and they never seem to stop. I don't I don't know when they sleep, but uh, I, the word that continually comes to my head when I see these antics is pathetic. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing, though, because, you know, in all my years, and I am somewhat older than you and some of the people in the chat room, but I have never seen a political environment as, as I have seen that has been born underneath the Trump candidacy and presidency. I have never, ever in my life seen anything like this. I mean, I thought Watergate was, was hysterical, but this, this just takes the cake. Well, I think those of us on the right, Annie, uh, what we're seeing now is – I think we've known that for a while. It just took Trump to, to bring it out, and I know for me you know, that I lived uh, in D.C. for four years. I was there uh, under the Obama administration, and I would try to listen and understand and try to understand their, their point of view. And finally, after three years, I just gave up because it just doesn't, didn't make any sense. But at least tried to listen to, to their side, and uh, I really saw how intolerant they were when President Trump got elected, and then on the day of his inauguration, 
Antifa is is uh, burning a uh, a limousine and destroying private property, and the cops did nothing. And that's when I really realized these people are intolerant. They really are the part of the biggest hate group in America. And now, the longer that Trump stays there, you just see the insanity of the whole group. Just like the the um, the picture that you showed, uh, talked about there, where they're all like aggressive and in his face, and Trump's really just laughing at them, and he just mocks them at all the time. And as someone who's kind of low on the totem pole like you are, it's fun to watch, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, because I was at the inauguration, I had uh, tickets courtesy of my congressman, and uh, we stayed. Oh, I think we may be three or four blocks behind the Capitol building. What a beautiful sight uh, it was there. And I had fun at the inauguration. But the strange part was is that, yeah, we saw some protests, but they kept us so separated, so segregated uh, that, you know, we went through multiple layers of security just to get to the White House lawn to be there to stand and watch him uh, take the oath. Uh, but they did a pretty good job in sheltering us and keeping the protesters away from us. So I, I can't blame them 100 percent. But you've got bosses in these police departments. And if the boss says back off, you have a choice. You either give up your job and pension or you follow the orders. And, you know, as a military person, that's the only choice you really have. Right. Oh, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, but I, but. The thought that goes through, was going through my head when I was sitting there watching that, and that's why I'm saying that was a watershed event for me. Of I'm not really interested in listening to the other side anymore because now I've seen that they have no desire to listen to my side. And when I was watching the limousine burn and them breaking windows in businesses, I was thinking, you know, that could be my house in the future. They could be burning my car at my house, breaking the windows at my house while the cops stood on the other side of the road and just watched. That is not a country I want to live in, and I'm all for listening to the other side, but when that side pushes and does something that's criminal, then I want action. I don't want people sitting and watching because if we do nothing today against that, eventually I think, Annie, there will come a time in the future where they're doing the same thing to me and you, and, and they're just standing and watching, and I don't want to live in that kind of country. No, no I don't blame you. And the, the worst part is is that the cameras roll when everything, all the action is happening. But once the Antifa or Occupy or whatever group that's riding leaves that city, that neighborhood, once they leave and the cameras leave, no one sees the path of the destruction that stays there and the people that have to pick up the pieces from that. I mean, when I became a cop in New York City, I was patrolling streets in Brooklyn that had a riot there a decade before. A decade later, the same buildings were still burnt out shells. The people took up, they left. They went to a safer neighborhood. They moved somewhere else. But meanwhile, these neighborhoods, a decade later, were still decimated. And that's what we're seeing in New York, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Detroit, all across the nation. Once the cameras leave, who is there to help the people pick up the pieces? Who is there to repair the neighborhood to rebuild and repopulate? No one. It doesn't mean anything to the news media anymore. And by showing up with their cameras and showing these rioters, they're only encouraging the rioting and the destruction. Hey, look, Ma, I'm on TV. And once the cameras stop rolling, they move on. Well, you know, the news is not news anymore. It's just narratives. And they'll only print or or uh, 
you know, put on the on television news what what uh, uh, proves their narrative, and which is not more and more is not the news at all. And I think people like you and I, and a lot of people on the right, we've got to the point where we can tell when it's just not true, and we just. It just, I kind of scratch my head at the news feed on my phone all the time because I'm like, I know this is not true, and it's like I have to search for the truth. Why do you think people listen to your show? You know, They want to hear from people that will actually talk about China and talk about what's going on, really going on in the, in the Middle East. You bring in some great experts to do that, but it gets harder and harder. But I'm surrounded by people, especially when I was in D.C., when they would start explaining their point. I'm like, my gosh, I can't believe I'm even listening to this because I know you're smart. Kennedy, they were in the college with me, but I just go back to what Ronald Reagan said. You know, it's not it's not that our friends on the left are ignorant. It's just that they know so many things it's not true. And man, I saw that a lot in Washington D.C. <laughs> well, I gotta say, yesterday my husband and I were at a uh, March for Trump rally that we had, and it was outside of our congressman's uh, office. Uh, Congressman Joe Beercan Cunningham. <laughs> and I was carrying a sign, Beercan Joe has got to go. But I got to say, we walked into the congressman's office just to let him know where we stood on the impeachment process that's going on about the call to censure Adam Schiff. And the people in that office could not have been nicer, and they were willing to listen, and they agreed with us on, on some of the points that we were making. You know, we can have that conversation. But if you have someone that's unwilling to listen, that will only perpetuate the lies, then the, what's the point? You're just going to knock heads. But if you can find someone on the other side that's willing to sit down and listen and say, all right, yeah, I, you know, I, I see where you're coming from. I will let the congressman know, you know where you stand. And we sent people after people after people. So it wasn't just one or two of us. There was a whole mess of us. And we went in respectfully, two or three at a time. Not so that the office would have a swamp. I and mean, there was over 40 of us at this rally. And there was about 20 some odd of the Democrats on the other side of the street. And the amazing thing is, is that all the signs on our side, 98% were positive. 95 on the Democrat side were all abusive. They were insulting. Mm-hmm. They were demeaning. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah. it, this is what we're facing. We're facing a divided country. But I'm looking at the time, and I've got to call our next guest. And, Ryman, you've got a special project you want to uh, talk to our listeners about and give out a website that you're working on. So go ahead and do that while I go make this phone call. Okay, Annie, thank you so much. If our listeners out there, uh, I work for a group called the We Can Be Heroes Foundation. And the We Can Be Heroes Foundation, this will be the seventh year in a row that we have honored those of Boston Benghazi. And as far as we know, we are the only group that still honors those lost in Benghazi. And this year's memorial will be on 26 October here in Jacksonville, Florida, at the University of North Florida. It will be at 630 in the evening. That's a week from tomorrow. A week from tomorrow will be a Saturday, and um, and we will have uh, the memorial, and we also have some great speakers. We have Ken Timmerman coming in to speak, who's actually been on this show. Uh, he is an expert on Iran. We have a, a Dr. Adam Francisco, who is an expert in Islam, and we also have Clara Lopez, who is an incredible speaker, and she is um, a previous CIA officer now works for a, a think tank up in D.C., and she comes down and speaks to us. We also have a woman by the name of Morgan Brittany, and uh, her and another lady is with the political political chicks. And Morgan Brittany, if you remember the show Dallas, the Ewing family, uh, they're in uh, Dallas, Texas, 
um, in the 80s and 90s, she was the actress that played the bad sister. So if you get a chance to come to Jacksonville for this event on the 26th of October, you get to meet the bad sister. And she stands for two things. Uh, she used her time since she's no longer an actri- at- actress to uh, support veterans and abused women. And so I tell people, if you don't care about veterans, you don't care about abused women, you're not in my Facebook circle. So that's the two things that she does. If you want tickets, all you have to do is uh, Google We Can Be Heroes Foundation here in Jacksonville. Again, that's We Can Be Heroes Foundation in Jacksonville. You can go through Eventbrite and uh, uh, pick up the tickets. They're $45 a piece, but we give discounts for first responders, senior citizens, students, and always veterans. And then if we have any World War II veterans that that come, they, of course, get in free and they get a special section. So, again, week from tomorrow, We Can Be Heroes, our uh, seventh annual uh, ceremony to remember those lost in Benghazi. Dr. Spaulding, this is uh, Annie Bells with Southern Sense. How are you? Southern Sense Talk Radio, you're scheduled to have an interview with us today? All right. All right. I've got my co-host holding down the floor for me, uh, so I'm going to put you on hold for just a bit, and then I'll bring you on, okay? All right. Thank you. Did we lose sound? Ryan? I'm still here with you. Yep, I'm still here with you. Oh, all right. Oh, I just heard dead air. That's where I was going. All right. We do have doctors are spolding in on the line. Let's, if I can get my fingers to work correctly. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Spolding. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I am doing fine. Um, I read your book, which is absolutely awesome. It's called uh, Stealth Wars, and it's a book on how you have envisioned what is occurring with China. And you know what? I have a ton of notes. I didn't print them out. I'm going to have to do this from memory. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I did that. Or did I? Nope, I've got them. I've got them. I'm losing my mind. Just forgive me. I don't have my normal co-host no with me, problem. which is Curtis Bennett. But I've got uh, retired Captain Ryman Shope with us. As a matter of fact, I should mention uh, that you are a retired Brigadier General from the Air Force. Uh, you have also worked in the presidential administration of uh, President Obama, uh, so you have firsthand knowledge about everything that is going on between China and the rest of the world. Yes. Are you there with us? I'm here. Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, because you're a little bit on the faint side. All right, it's an excellent, excellent book. I really did enjoy reading it. And a matter of fact, it's a lot of stuff that I've been talking about on the show in the past that we truly don't understand uh, how China is attacking the Western world and using the economy of the rest of the world to achieve their goals of global domination. Right, right. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, the book is really about, um, I think if you look at the NBA, what recently happened with uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, um, you know, uh, expressing support 
for the people of Hong Kong. Uh, and then, you know, we just uh, found out today that from uh, Adam Silver that the Communist Party actually asked the NBA to fire uh, to fire that guy. And in my book, I talk about Roy Jones, who was a mid-level employee of the Marriott Corporation, who actually was fired because the Communist Party asked Marriott Corporation to do. Uh, you, when you couple that, you know, the influence of our corporate, our financial, our political and academic elites, along with all the, you know, the, the, the over 70,000 factories and 13 million jobs that we uh, that were displaced, uh, that came, by the way, that had, you know, health benefits and retirement benefits, then you begin to have a picture of the immense power that the Chinese Communist Party has accrued over democracies around the world. Your connection's a little bit faint. Um, are you on a speakerphone? I am on. I'm on uh, Bluetooth. Yeah. Let me get to just the phone and see if that's better. All right. Um, the book Stealth War. Uh, you write in it that for the past forty years, the communist, the Chinese Communist Party has been playing a really beautiful game. It's very sophisticated, but very simple. And one of the things I, I found amazing is that you mentioned this book. You mentioned about a uh, woman scientist in um, France. I, I'm going to get her name wrong. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. N- Nadege Roland. Yes, thank Nadege you very Roland. much. And believe it or not, I took, I took French in high school. <laughs> That's how good I was <laughs> at it. Uh, but you speak the language, and she does. And when the yeah. Chinese come forward and they make these pronouncements like uh, President Xi did at the uh, Global Summit, and they sound so wonderful. The sound bites are excellent, and everyone's so happy, so rosy. China's finally losing their communistic ways, and they're, they're starting to understand. They understand the West, but the nuance is in the words they use, how they use them, and how they are interpreted, whether Correctly, deliberately, or incorrectly, deliberately. Yes, they are. They are actually uh, masters at controlling the narrative, and that was one of the things. You know, I, I really I lived in China from 2002 to 2004, and my ability to understand that part of it, the part that they control, the Communist Party controlled the narrative in China, uh, it's really obfuscated when you're there, uh, even if you're living there. And then, of course, as I be, was trained as a military diplomat, I came to realize that um, not only had they controlled the narrative within China, but they, be, they had begun to control the narrative also uh, in our own government in terms of how we spoke to the Chinese. In fact, we used a lot of their same talking points and how we uh, interfaced with them to the point where, you know, our, our diplomatic language with China – been co-opted by the Chinese Communist Party because we were we were using the ways that they um, you know portrayed China and the Chinese people uh, rather than being you know accurate representations of the China of the Chinese people in terms of understanding the type of uh, oppression that they faced. That instead we were when we said China or the Chinese people we were more essentially parroting back what the Chinese Communist Party wanted us to say. You know, like, you know, they would say things like, you've angered 1.4 billion Chinese, when in fact most Chinese people didn't really know anything that was going on with regard to diplomacy or that, you know, there was any um, disagreement at all 
other than what the Chinese Communist Party was portraying, both in their indoctrination through education and their media and control of the Internet. Well, it is amazing because, you know, as as we get closer relations with China, and it's it's not a good thing that, that is going on at this point. I remember watching Nixon when he went as president to open the doors to China, and I kept on thinking to myself, you know, we are enemies with communism. It stands for everything that is complete opposite of what our our constitution is. They don't want the freedoms and liberties that we have. So trying to open the doors to this nation is going to be a huge mistake. And I remember thinking about that in the 1970s. And here I was a kid in school, and I was aware of the situation. And, and yet Nixon, up until his death, still thought that that move was his greatest and finest moment as president. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think um, not only um, do they not want us to, or do they not want, you know, democracy and freedom, they also don't want free trade. You know, so there's a big debate here, um, you know, in this country about what are the value of the tariffs. Well, in reality, China is not an open market economy. It is a controlled economy and a controlled economy that, by the way, is parasitic and predatory. And so, tariffs actually helped balance the playing field because those 70,000 factories didn't go away because China was more efficient at production or China, um, you know, had more, you know, better productivity. Actually their productivity is less, but in fact they were subsidizing um, the producers and they were, you know, using currency manipulation and tariff and non-tariff barriers to essentially advantage their own companies to the detriment of American companies. Adding that uh, fact that they had uh, low environmental protections and low labor protections, so they were polluting the environment and exploiting labor, and and the companies, the U.S. companies, wanted to increase their margins by not having to abide by labor protections and environmental protections. So there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, not only what enabled the, the Chinese Communist Party to do what they do, but also all the damage to our society and an economy that happened. You know, one of the things I talk about is the fact that Chinese companies now are making a, a lot of the components to include circuit boards on F-35. That's extremely dangerous for our national security, but it's part and parcel to the destruction of our industrial base that occurred after they entered the WTO. You know, I, I find that ironic, and considering there was recent reports of the F-35s being grounded because of uh, the uh, infiltration of the air supply, uh, contamination that was causing the pilots to get dizzy and everything else. And I live halfway between Paris Island Marine Corps Recruit Depot and the Marine Corps Air Station, so we go to the air show whenever we have a chance. And we're familiar with the F-35s, the F-35A, B, and C, the three different versions for the Air Force, right. the Navy, and the Marine Corps. Uh, and we had a whole big thing over here uh, in, in Beaufort County, South Carolina, where they were trying to get uh, the Marine Corps station to take over additional space based upon the F-35s. And that was over eight years ago. And at that point, they were already three years behind. So if you think about all this technology for the F-35s that have been 
farmed out to the Chinese and seeing how long it took them to, to develop the F-35, still have problems with them, wondering why we continue to allow the Chinese to manufacture such sensitive material that is so uh, important to our national security. Why are we allowing them to make the steel? Why are we allowing them to make these components? Why are we allowing them access to any of this technology? Yeah, I mean, when we went to uh, when the Cold War ended, we just we we followed um, economic theory and social theory to its natural conclusion, uh, which was open markets lead to wealth and wealth leads to democracy. And we globalized. And when we globalized the supply chain in the United States, we also globalized our defense industrial base so that, you know, all of our manufacturing capacity, you know, the, the things that were being manufactured for the commercial uh, space, uh, those companies were also manufacturing for the defense space. When you get rid of your manufacturing capability, then you have to rely on, in this case, our, an adversary to one that actually – doesn't agree with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, or freedom from oppression, uh, and they become the manufacturing base for the weapons that defend those freedoms. So in, in reality, we partnered with an adversary that had no um, desire or interest in seeing the preservation of our own constitution. No, you don't. And it's so amazing that we have allowed them to become such a integral part of our economy, and of our, our supply base. You were talking about in the book, you were talking about the ports. And uh, President Trump, thankfully, pulled one of the ports out from underneath them. Uh, we have the Chinese that control ports here that don't allow our military vessels or military personnel on those ports. We have them controlling the containers that are coming over here. In the 9-11 report, if anyone had bothered to take a look at it or try to even implement one-tenth of it, the first thing we would have done was to secure the containers. We have less than 10% that are inspected as they arrive here in the United States. And you write in your book that there's, what, only four inspectors that are allowed in China to look at the thousands upon thousands of these containers that leave every single day, we're completely vulnerable. Oh, and not, and not only are there only four inspectors in China, they aren't actually allowed by Chinese law to inspect the containers. What they do is they ask the Chinese to inspect on our behalf. And so when I was over there, I spoke to the, um, the, the Customs and Border Patrol guy that had been there for almost four or five years, and I asked him, you know, how compliant are they? And he said, well, on paper, they're 20% compliant, but in reality, they're not compliant at all. And so it just shows you how uh, when we coupled to such a, um, a, a regime that had no interest in supporting the, the interests uh, or rule of law or the national or, or international standards, um, that we created all these vulnerabilities to the, to the point where we have, you know, that's one of the reasons we have fentanyl pouring into this country so not only did these communities lose the factories and the jobs and the health care and the retirement benefits, fentanyl poured in. So non, you know, uh, unsafe products and fentanyl poured in. And, you know, it's killing 40 to 50,000 Americans a year. And it's all coming from China. It's coming from their pharmaceutical factories. Oh, that's another thing that drives me crazy. When did we stop producing our own medications and vaccinations? 
We have people are saying, "Oh, we're running out of all these vaccinations for these diseases. We can't manufacture enough." But we're not manufacturing them. China is manufacturing them. If you remember, a couple of years ago, there was a huge scare about contaminated baby formula. It's coming from China. They don't have the manufacturing standards we have in the United States. So if we're getting contaminated products, we're getting knockoffs, we're getting products that actually cause more damage than they do good. Yeah, and as I, t- I talk about in the book, uh, if you have, if you start a business, you do engineer a new product, say, and you do all the advertising and marketing, and you're doing really well as a business, and you're selling uh, through Amazon as a channel, uh, within a month or two, of you know getting getting that business up and going and really doing well, you're going to be bombarded by Chinese knockoffs that use your marketing uh, material, use your advertising. Basically, are on the same exact Amazon site. In fact, when you when when the customers click the button, they're going to buy their product because it's cheaper. And what what these uh, what these new companies find out is they get a product return. They open it up and they realize, well, it's not their product. It's 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 a it's a Chinese knockoff. And so what they would do is they would call Amazon and they would say, hey, you know, you guys went and incentivized these guys to sell on your channel to basically take my business, and this is a knockoff product. They're stealing my my uh, business. And Amazon says, well, that's not our problem. And so the customer, the uh, the the business owner says, Amazon, can you tell me the address and the phone number of this company so I can get them off? And they say, well, I'm sorry, but that's not our policy. So it, it, it really destroys the innovation uh, of Americans because why spend your money to engineer products, do all the marketing and advertising, just to have you know all these Chinese knockoffs come and destroy your business? Well, the worst part is is that uh, the postage from China to the United States is cheaper than the postage, say, from California to New York. So it incentivizes people to buy stuff from China because they pay a low shipping. Yeah, that that is just, you know, it's one of the many things uh, that, that we have allowed them to do. And quite frankly, they've taken advantage of. And corporate America has, you know, so Amazon doesn't care. You know, they're getting a fee either way. Um, and they're, so they're really, you know, it's almost as if, Walmart had knockoffs on its shelves. You know, the Federal Trade Commission would go in and actually punish Walmart, but do they go in and punish Amazon? No. And so there's so many things about the global economy, um, both in terms of, you know, the lack of, uh, of, of enforcement on Chinese companies and their willingness to actually use that lack of enforcement to destroy the, econ- the economy and the society of the United States because I, they hate our freedoms. Well, this is where you know, President Trump has stepped in. Uh, he's going after the, the counterfeiters. He's going after the intellect, protecting the intellectual property. And I think he's making inroads. Another thing he's done also, thankfully, I think this was this past week, I saw an article on this. He's going after them to remove the preferential t- treatment by the post office. They will pay the same postage rate everyone else pays based upon the weight and where it's coming from. <laughs> this, this special deal is going to be out the window for them. So he's starting to make inroads. Is he causing and, and, enough harm to make China change their mind in ways? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it has to keep going. So the tariffs, they actually need to be made permanent because 
China is not going to abide by the rules and they're going to continue to undermine our companies. Uh, yes, a lot of the companies that have their um, businesses in China, their manufacturing in China are unhappy about it, but they need to bring their companies back to the United States to do manufacturing where we can actually control the safety of them and make sure that Americans are employed, that have good jobs with health care and retirement benefits. More importantly, you know, what's starting to happen because the tariffs are starting to bite in China is China put pressure on the the equities, the stocks indexers who are indexing um, the emerging market uh, companies, and they put pressure on them to raise the number or the percentage of their portfolio that goes to China. So they weren't sending any of their index money or the index to China, and they went all the way up to 20% uh, starting next month. So in the next year, $400 billion U.S. dollars of American hard-earned retirement funds are going to pour into China for them to build their weapons, to build to build their cities, to build their highways, to build their 5G networks, to build the Belt and Road Initiative. And that money's never coming back. And so it's going to be a loss uh, by those retirement funds, putting them even deeper in arrears than they already are. So, you know, we need we also need to stop that. You know, you know Rubio has a bill that's designed, uh, it's called the Equitable Act, that's designed to make their companies because while they're while we're buying their stocks, the companies themselves aren't actually subject to the same audit and transparency requirements of American corporations. So American these retirement funds don't even know what they're buying. These are this is one other way that uh, the Chinese get money from the United States and don't really have to pay it back. Well, that's the, that's the the crux of the matter because we have companies that are going over there having them do the manufacturing, making the money, but they cannot pull a penny out of China. It must stay in the Chinese control. And they're using that money, as you said, to build up their military, to build up all their other infrastructures. And, And that is the problem. So here you buy stock and say GE, and you think you're buying into an American company, but how much money has GE lost? I mean, it's just sitting there. They can't do anything with it. They can't use it to expand anything. They can't bring it out to return it to the shareholders. They can't do anything with that. And it's every single foreign company in China. And all these foreign companies have their equity stuck. And they can't do it. They can't move it. Yeah, I mean, it really is a perfect situation for for the Chinese Communist Party because you know, they've insulated their financial system so that they, they take money in and it never has to go out. They, you know, give their companies the advantage in their own markets, and then they subsidize them to go after, um, you know, our, our companies in our own markets. Uh, you know, they provide every advantage to um, the Chinese people, and it's really because they know that if they don't, then the Chinese people are, are going to overthrow them. And the only way that they can do this, the only way that they can continue to provide employment for these people is to take from, you know, the United States and Europe and other economies and other democracies. At the same time, they're turning around, and just like they showed through the NBA and Marriott Corporation, they're undermining democracies. They're getting us and our elites basically to sell our freedoms for, you know, enormous profits for a few individuals in each of the societies. Well, they have gotten themselves so entrenched in our society 
in our politics, in our education system, in our corporations, and we're seeing the effect of it. And I want to bring up one of these politicians that's not one of my favorites. I call him a rhino, and it kind of explains why he is. Uh, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and his lovely bride. Well, yeah, and, and as I say in the book, and, there, and then, you know, everybody that I named in the book, I mean, it's all out in there in the media. It's nothing uh, that, you know, it's just bringing it all together at, at one time to see all of this influence going on. But his his um, family, his his wife's family is good friends with Jiang Zemin, who was, a, who was a chairman of the Chinese Communist Party before Xi Jinping. And his sister-in-law sits on the board of directors of the Bank of China. Now, when Mitch McConnell says uh, tariffs are bad, you know, does is some of that influence coming from that? Maybe or maybe not, but certainly this adoption of the same worldview that Xi Jinping has when he goes to Davos, and it's on both sides of the aisle, it's in Wall Street, it's in corporate America, it's in academia, it's in our think tanks and our law firms, has to do, I believe, at least somewhat with this close personal relationship through financial relationships with the Chinese Communist Party. And the Communist Party is in everything, everywhere. No business can open in China without having a member of the Chinese Communist Party on its board. So, you know, no matter what the company does, the Chinese government will have a say in what takes place and whether or not they even keep that product and the product is, is then moved to someone else. Just, you're closed, uh, it's now going to my cousin over here. Well, I just think that, you know, the book Stealth War is really about bringing this to light. It's a call to arms for Americans to stand up, fight for their country. You know, ships and planes and tanks aren't going to defend us from this. We really need a financial, economic, and, and uh, you know, to strengthen those uh, ties within our own country, to invest in our own country, and more importantly and most importantly, to protect our Internet because our data now uh, the accumulation of that data really is accumulation of power. So I called for in the national security strategy a secure nationwide 5G network that encrypts your data and makes you uh, the only one that can actually allow anybody to see that. So that's something that we need to preserve our democracy in the digital age and something I'm fighting for. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the uh, Internet and everything else. comes to mind of Heiwa, the uh, Chinese company that we sued and everyone it it hit the front page maybe three paragraphs of our paper and then the next time you see it would be months later on the financial pages and then even then it got buried into like just a couple of small paragraphs but this company controls so much of the the um my mind just went blank our our cell phones our smart devices Data, yes, and it's, it's, absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm a little bit of a brain fart there. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. And, and and you know, not only it's not only Huawei that controls the data, you know, in terms of the technology, but also Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, which are rivals of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. Those are going to be dominant in the next ten years if we don't stop what's going on in 5G. And when that is. You know, the, the the influence they had over the NBA is going to look like nothing compared to the influence they'll have over our entire society. 
Yeah, they also control a lot of our entertainment industry, uh, as well as the sport industry. And we saw this whole thing break out with the protests in Hong Kong. And it used to be you'd see reports of it, of what was going on in Hong Kong on the news. And it was there for like the first week. And now you don't see anything. The only way you find out what's going on is through the Internet. And even that, the Chinese government is trying to filter and you had two people thrown out of an NBA game because they held up signs saying, we support Hong Kong. You know, they are doing everything and anything to censure freedom of speech. Yeah, their, their, their reach, their power uh, is growing day by day. And, you know, it just it shows you how important geopolitics is, is controlled by economics and finance and data in the 21st century. And so if we are going to re, um, reclaim our place in the world to, to, to strengthen and preserve our democracy, then our economic, financial, trade, and information relationships with our allies and partners has to be as strong as our relationships with them in a security sense or in a military sense. Now, if they have relationships with China in those areas, then they are undermining our collective security and in essence aren't good allies and so getting making them aware of how important this is uh, on a bilateral sense in terms of preserving our freedoms collectively is important and certainly if they decide that they want to go with the Chinese then they shouldn't be military allies of ours in fact we should take our military out because it's actually undermining our collective security you know, if, if people were to read your book, Stealth Wars, uh, they would be really amazed to find out how China has infiltrated not just the United States, but just about every nation uh, using uh, technology, using access to data, using products, using, as you mentioned, the belt. Uh, you, They would be absolutely surprised how China... It with one hand saying, oh, we're trying to help the global economy. We're trying to open up markets. But instead, they all want to impose their version of totalitarianism. We're the little children, and we're supposed to look up to them. They are the sun, and we are just the sunflowers who turn our face to them. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Andy, can I, <laughs> I jump in for a second? in your book. Sure, go ahead, Ryman. <laughs> General, I've got a couple questions for you. First of all, uh, the last four years that I was uh, active duty, I was actually a professor at the National War College, and there was another professor up there with me, uh, and he's the only other B-2 driver that I've uh, that I've ever uh, known, uh, and his name was Robert Colella. Did you? Does that name ring yeah, a bell with you? I, I know, I know, Bob. Yeah, know him yeah. well. He came in. Yeah, he came in at the same time that I did in 2008, and then we stayed there together. Both ended up retiring. Uh, there in 2012. Great, great guy, very smart, and uh, he told me what he could about the B-2. I'm an aviator myself, but I flew S-3s, and we didn't quite have the technology that you guys had at the B-2. The second uh, question I got for you is uh, I I give a lot of um, foreign policy speeches here in northeast Florida, and uh, I'm not an expert on China like you are, but I have um, given speeches on on the subject matter. And one of the things that, that I always do when I start my uh, commentary is I just give them some rudimentary, uh, rudimentary ideas about strategy, and I go into 
symmetric and asymmetric strategy. That is symmetric where it's strength on strength and asymmetric where it's strength on weakness. And I build the case throughout my speech that what we're dealing here with is that they are truly masters of Sun Tzu. And you know, we're, we only understand half the equation. We understand our strengths. We're not realizing that they're not – we're really good at kinetic. You know, we're really good at dropping bombs, and that thing has worked for us over the, you know, over the centuries. But that's not how the Chinese are looking at us, and, and I get this from your book, that they are thinking asymmetrically. And I tell my audience, I say, you know, you know what the golden rule is, right? The golden rule is he who owns all the gold makes all the rules. <laughs> and that the Chinese, the Chinese are really moving in that once they own all the resources, they go in and they move all the resources. It doesn't matter how many B-2 bombers you have or F-35 you have because if you own all those resources, you don't need to go kinetic. Because you got all the wealth, and isn't that really what they're doing? They're really working on us asymmetrically to, to 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 contain those resources so that we can't get them. To contain the wealth, the data, whether it's uh, in the ground or out of the ground, cyberspace, wherever it is. Because once they have that, you don't really have to go kinetic, will you? Oh, and that's exactly right. In fact, that's when I was at the Pentagon in 2014. That's what I realized was going on. You know. When we beat the Soviet Union, and we didn't we didn't fight them, we bankrupted them. And essentially, China had maneuvered us into the same position we had maneuvered the Soviet Union. When I first started in the Air Force, uh, a co-pilot, you know, that was at, with me flying B-52s up in Minot, North Dakota, bought a brand new frontline Soviet Union train trainer aircraft and had it shipped over to to Minot so he could fly around uh, for his own enjoyment. Now that was that was capable because the whole economy collapsed and essentially that's where China's goals is forcing us to yeah and it's interesting because I made that same case in my speech that they're using the same strategy against us that Reagan was smart enough to realize hey if we can just bankrupt them Again, we don't have to go kinetic. We don't have to go open warfare. And I make the case that China, the Chinese are smart. They're looking at us, and they're, they're looking at how we have won the wars in the past, and I've said the exact same thing. They're doing the same thing that we did against Russia. They are trying to do the same thing uh, against us. And then I go back to the golden rule of if they have all the resources, um, you know, they don't really have to go kinetic. And I tell a story about being in Cambodia, and I was talking to the um, attache there. And he said, yeah, there's, a, a, there's actually a natural gas field in northern Cambodia, and the Chinese figured that, that, you know, that there was resources there, and they, they made a very good case to the government. They said, hey, look, you've got all this natural gas, but your infrastructure is so poor, you can't get it to your citizens. This is what we'll offer you. We will come in. We will develop the field. We will – we will pay you a dividend. You know, we'll pay you for the natural gas at, at market uh, prices so that you can have the money. We just want all the natural gas. And he says if you go to that field, all of the pipes come out of the ground and go north toward China. None of it is in, the, in, in Cambodia. But because the country's so poor, the government said, well, hey, it's not doing us any good in the ground. We're going to get a check. At least we'll get something. And they gave the Chinese the go-ahead, and they went in there and developed the field. But all the natural gas is heading to, to China. Uh, Cambodia doesn't get any of it. Yeah, they really are experts at, you know, thinking long-term and strategy. And, you know, but, you know, we can do the same. You know, Eisenhower really put us on a good path, um, you know, and Reagan finishes out, certainly. But Eisenhower, in the very beginning, said we're not going to compete with them uh, in a conventional power sense. We're not – we're going to 
they're going to spend a lot of money on guns. We're going to spend a lot of money on butter. We're going to build the Eisenhower National Highway System. We're going to spend a lot on basic science research. We're going to, we're going to spend on um, weapons to deter a conflict with them. And we're going to grow our economy, and we're just going to let the clock run. And that's what, that's what we did. And, you know, yeah, Reagan finished it off, but it was started by Eisenhower. And quite frankly, if you look at the national security strategy as it reads today, it's really taking a page out of what Eisenhower is doing and, and focusing back on investing in our, uh, our economy and our science and technology and our infrastructure and in our STEM education and research and development and really growing the, the, our, the power of our – the economic power of our country and at the same time drawing down some of our military, focusing on deterrence and taking some of that money and, and pouring it into our, uh, to our economy to grow our, our economic and science and technology um, power. Yeah, but didn't didn't Eisenhower get that idea? Well, didn't, didn't Eisenhower get that idea from George Kennan, who said, "Hey, communism doesn't work, and if we just wait them out, they'll eventually collapse under their own their own weight of inefficiencies." Wasn't that really what uh, um, Eisenhower was thinking when he said, "We're going to focus on uh, butter because eventually they'll just collapse and build too many guns"? Isn't that really what the the theory was? Well, so the other interesting thing about Eisenhower at the National Security Council. Um, he had a strategy-making um, cell, and they, um, they ran a project called Project Solarium. Kennan was actually mm-hmm. one of three groups uh, that, were, that were looking at that problem. And so when Eisenhower took the briefing from those three groups, he essentially synthesized the strategy that you know, would drive uh, all the way to 70 years to the end of the, um, of the Cold War. Um, I mean, it was it was developed in his administration. And so, you know, one of the interesting things I think people don't understand is what I was doing at the White House is something that we haven't done since the Eisenhower administration, which is really look long term, think strategically and put in place some motions that would turn things around. The problem is really about implementation. If we can implement, if we can execute, if we can drive investment into our own society, then we'll be fine. Well, if we can bring yeah, like manufacturing like and technology, if we can bring our technology and manufacturing back to the United States and take it out of the hands of China, it's a good first step. And we saw Trump attempting to to lure companies back to the United States and keeping technology here at home. Uh, for some reason, in the last few decades, we have abandoned research and development. We let it go into someone else's hands. I mean, just look at companies have to do just to get a medication approved or a tech or or a procedure approved through the fda you have to jump through so many hoops if we can lessen those regulations and make everything easier to have it once again made in the usa solely that would be great absolutely hey general i'm wondering does uh from what you've seen so far can you kind of give us some specific thoughts on do you think Trump is moving in the right direction? Is he doing the right thing? Have we t- you moved away from what Obama did to us for eight years? Can you just kind of give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he's 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 trying. Most of the decisions that I've seen him uh, make have been, um, you know, the opposite of the advice he's been given. Unfortunately, we, we continue to have enormous pressure put on him from, uh, politicals, um, and also the corporate and Wall Street interests. And so they're trying to get him to come to a deal with China, which a de- they have no intention of changing, restructuring their economy or um, of stopping what they're doing. And so 
the pressure for to, for a deal with China is really a pressure for us to abandon the Constitution. Now the president has held you know firm, but I mean he's for, he's he's being assailed on all sides, and I think that's one of the reasons I decided to get out of the military so that I could really tell you know what was going on, you know tell the story and get out there and talk to American people and say you know the people that are saying that we don't need tariffs and the people that say that are saying that we need to deal with China are the same people that sold you down the river for profits. They do not have your interest in heart. They don't have the Constitution at heart. All they want is money. Well, as as Ryman said, I was going to say, as Ryman said, whoever has all the gold, that's the golden rule. (laughs) That's right. Whoever owns all the gold makes all the rules. That's right. I'm just wondering if you could give me another comment, General. I watch a lot of business news, and I know um, watching this morning they were pointing out that the Chinese economy uh, has grown this past year the smallest amount than in the last decade. And uh, I think you'll agree with me that Xi Jinping, the one thing that keeps him up at night is, you know, they're all students of Mao. And you get a billion people moving in, in the opposite direction of you, you're not going to win. And he knows that if he doesn't keep those Chinese fed, you know, they've got this big swine flu, uh, uh, flu problem over there where they're, they're having to kill all these, these uh, hogs. And if you get too many people starving, they will rise up. You see what's happening in uh, uh, Hong Kong as well. And I'm just wondering, can you give us some thoughts of the thing that Xi Jinping scares the most is his people being restless and rising up and you know, moving, finding someone else that will move the country in the right direction. At least when I, when I talk to my Chinese experts up at National World College, that's what they tell me is that that is the Achilles heel, is that Xi Jinping wakes up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my gosh, what are my people doing? Absolutely, and as I say in the book, you know the biggest uh, the biggest uh, um, fear of uh, the biggest vulnerability of the Chinese Communist Party is the U.S. Constitution. It's really what what it stands for, you know, freedom and democracy. And you know that doesn't come into play when you know everything is going well with the Chinese economy. Of course, they're predatory and parasitic for just that reason. But once we start to defend ourselves, and that economy starts to get some uh, you know, chink in the armor, then, uh, you know, it's going to be a, big, a, a a hard time for Xi Jinping. So what we need to do is just keep keep pouring it on, keep keep the pressure on, keep defending ourselves, you know, start investing in our country. And when that happens, you know, things are going to change. Well, I've got a question for you because you talk about also education and how they've opened up the Confucius schools. And I, I remember a number of years ago reading about them bragging about a Confucius school they had opened up in Hilton Head down here. And I'm going, what are they, nuts? I, I, I smelled a rat back then. But you talk about how our universities are welcoming these Chinese students that are coming over here, and they stay insulated in their own community. They're not allowed to mix and mingle with the rest of the students, and they take our knowledge and technology back to China and use it against us. You pointed out where at one point there was even a minder found on a campus that you followed, and he was telling them, be careful about what you say and what you do and what we think. Because when you return home, there may be a problem with you and your family once you get back. Or we'll take care of your family now unless you toe the line. So we have people that are here as students, as visa workers, uh, still being controlled by the Communist Party, even though they're here in the land of the free. Absolutely. And and that's uh, because of 
policies that were instituted by the Chinese Communist Party uh, after the Tiananmen Massacre. They realized that, you know, uh, freedom and democracy could easily spread uh, in a globalized world. And in order to prevent that, they needed to pump up their ability to control how um, the, the Chinese people thought, even when they were away. So they started forced indoctrination at all grade levels. They took control of all Chinese language media, not just in China, everywhere. And they began to create the kind of apparatus with the Ministry of State Security and the People's Armed Police that allows them to threaten the population, you know, individuals and their families if they get out of line or if they forget, you know, uh, where they're from. Uh, In addition, they're spending, you know, something like $15 billion in our university system, which allows the embassy and the consulates to put pressure on university presidents to take all the students out, you know, putting them in the red. So, I mean, there's so many, um, there's so many areas, you know, the Confucius Institutes themselves are a part of the official propaganda arm of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's part of all an elaborate um, way that they control the narrative within China and control the population and really use the population as just one element of a way that they, that they are predatory and parasitic on democracies. And also they control what is being taught in our, our our education institutes, so much so that when the Dalai Lama attempted to come over to speak on campus, he was prohibited. Uh, a member of the Fulong Gang, where we did a show on them about the harvesting of organs in that group, uh, tried to come over to have a speech, and again, they were censured. Uh, they are controlling the actual story and education in our education system here in the United States. Absolutely, and, and, and they're so effective at it, and I think, you know, but we're starting to fight back. You know, the Departments of Justice, the FBI, the State Department, you know, are starting to actually fight back, it, but it's going to be a long, it took 30 years, 30 to 40 years to get into this mess. It's going to take a little bit of time to get out, but we need to keep the pressure on. I think the president, you know, uh, understands the challenge, but he's, like I said, he's assailed on all sides. I politicians our politicians really need to be made aware of the threat we face and you know if they're not willing to stand up for it then then maybe we need new politicians well now i raises another question as i talk about the education system because they have become so entrenched in it is this why we're seeing our youth accepting socialism and communism over our republic Absolutely. So uh, money from those countries, not just uh, China, but also Russia, uh, are getting funneled into our university system to promote socialism. That's what's happening. And it's also inside our um, news media, too, because you had an incident with the Voice of America, a female reporter, having wanting to uh, interview someone who was a refugee, uh, a very wealthy person. And tell us that story and how that ended up influencing how China was portrayed to the rest of the world. Yeah, and so uh, Miles Gaw, who who lives in New York, he's a a dissident billionaire. Uh, He he escaped from China in 2014. Obviously, he knows um, Xi Jinping quite well. He knows Wang Qishan quite well. And so um, the Sasha Gong, who was the head of the VOA Mandarin Service, uh, he wanted to interview him, and and so uh, they the the VOA was very happy that she had gotten the interview, and so um, they scheduled for the interview to come on, 
And then right before the interview aired, uh, the the uh, VOA director, uh, Amanda Bennett, got a call from the Chinese uh, basically saying not to air the, the interview. And so they tried to get Sasha to, to basically voluntarily uh, cut the interview. She said no, she wasn't going to do that. You guys had already approved it. And, of course, you know, as their in- interview was going, uh, the VOA basically had them cut the feed and uh, put um, uh, Sasha Gong and two of her employees on suspicion and, and eventually fired them because the Chinese Communist Party put pressure on them, just like with the NBA. So this is VOA. This is not CNN or Fox News. This is the Voice of America. It's funded by the U.S. government, and the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to, to, to hold sway over the VOA. Uh, it's amazing. And then they take out nice, glossy ads in the Washington Post, and you wonder why <laughs> conservatives hate the Washington Post. But that's what they do. It's propaganda. Each and everything is calculated to actually fool the public. And I want to get into fooling the public where you had mentioned the belt, the BRI. Uh, and they are – I spoke about this a number of years ago, about their expansion and orphan to help do infrastructure and all these other wonderful things in, in Africa. And my prediction back then was, watch, it's going to spread to the Caribbean, to South America, to everywhere else in the world. And it's proven to be true. And you write extensively about this and how they go in saying they'll do one thing on one hand. And in the end, the country ends up having to kowtow to Xiaoping. Oh, yeah. And they, and they, they basically make these deals where they have, you know, um, you know, these enormous infrastructure pro- projects that the con- country can't pay for. And then what happens is, uh, just like the port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka, the Chinese Communist Party just takes support for 99 years. And so it is a way of conquering territory without you know, using weapons. It's just using economics and finance. And they'll put things into their contract, like, for instance, the, the workers that work on this project have to all speak Chinese to, to ensure that, you know, the, the country itself can actually employ its people in these projects. So they bring in Chinese to do them. So, this is uh, this is going on around the uh, around the Eurasian landmass, and, and also, you know, as you mentioned, the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa and other places as well. And they go in there, and as they bring in their workers, they create housing for their workers. They bring in stores that have Chinese merchandise, so even they control what the workers are buying, where they live. So they're making a mini China within each one of these countries. And it benefits no one that is native to the country. It only benefits communist China. Yeah, and, and uh, you, when I was at the White House, McKinsey did a study on this. And, you know, I asked the, the, the authors of the study, did they interview any of the people, any of the local population? They said, well, we interviewed the owners of the businesses who were all Chinese and the government leaders. Uh, but we didn't interview any of the people. So, yeah, there, it's just a way that we think about the world you know, has um, really uh, contributed to this to the to this behavior on the part of the Chinese Communist Party, essentially never being countered. No, I, I like that portion in the book because he did admit he did interview one native person who happened to have been a taxi driver. <laughs> the taxi driver going to have right. said, something I did, to say I did talk about to some taxi cab drivers. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but if General, General, isn't something else that's happened? 
Oh, I'm, no, go, no, ahead, go ahead, Ronnie. Annie. No, I was just going to ask they... the general. <laughs> okay, I was just going to ask the general about, uh, you know, when when uh, uh, Trump was going, uh, he made a comment about why don't we buy Greenland? And of course, everybody on the left mocked him for having such a silly idea. But um, isn't China also looking at buying Greenland? And it has to do with their desire to corner the market on rare earth metals. It absolutely, absolutely, uh, they do. Uh, they just go about it a different way. You know, they'll they'll make some kind of deal that Greenland can't repay, and then they'll just take they'll just take the land, and that's what they do all over the world. So um, it is uh, it is a clever way of doing things. They're, they they understand how to use um, you know their their enormous resources to entice these government leaders. Uh, and, and business leaders to go uh, to go into hawks with the Chinese Communist Party, and then they just they pull the rug out from under their feet, and and, and th- then they end up losing their sovereignty. Well, you know, we mentioned uh, technology, the, our data, uh, which is extremely important, and how China is has their fingers in all of our electronics, our computers, our smart devices, our phones, everything. And my question is, is have, do they control us so much? Can they bring down our power grid should they choose to do so? Uh, I believe they could if they chose to do so. Um, you know, of course, that would be uh, tantamount to declaring war on the United States, and so I think that would invoke you know, a lot of the military power that they have, so they wouldn't do that. I think one of the things that are that's terrifying to me is that um, if the grid is brought down, the the, the network comes down, our, our, our wireless networks, and because these networks are required to balance the loads on bringing the grid back up, we won't be able to bring the grid back up. So, you know, one of the reasons I said we needed a secure 5G network was not only to uh, protect Americans' data, but also to protect critical infrastructure like the grid uh, to make sure that it was resilient against attack, you know, much like our military assets are. Well, you know, you hear these horror stories about the 5G, and you hear these little warnings that go across the Internet about 5G, be careful, it's going to cause brain cancer, it's going to do all these awful things. But the main purpose of the 5G is to have machines talk to machines. And they're talking about these driverless cars, and Lord, that scares the bejesus out of me. But we need to be able to speak to these machines to control them better. And China wants to control the 5G, which is why you're recommending the exact opposite. Absolutely. And and really, um, you know, what the recommendation was, was to have a secure encrypted um, 5G network so that if you did have self-driving cars or if you did have remote surgery devices or drones or anything that was connected to the network, that not only could that data not be stolen by the Chinese, but those devices couldn't be hacked and used against us. And I think, you know, that capability exists uh, in some of our uh, Department of Defense programs and some of our intelligence community programs. Um, Unfortunately, we're not deploying that to our civilian networks because we haven't figured out that controlling and protecting um, America's data is as important as protecting the air, land, sea, and space. You know, which reminds me that, you know, they came up with this genius idea to to store all the government data up onto the cloud, and Amazon would control the cloud. Is that anything to be fearful of, do you think? 
<laughs> well, I mean, absolutely. You know, it, it, I, the, the, the problem with our telecommunications and our IT infrastructure now is it was never designed to have security uh, from the get-go. It was always uh, an afterthought. It wasn't built in. It's almost like building a house on quicksand. The, the, the foundation was never there for security. And, you know, the idea was to rebuild that Internet and make security uh, the key um, centerpiece of it so that rather than having to worry about our data being um, taken or our machines being hacked, that it was it was secure, um, you know, at its core. And, you know, we can do that. We just choose not to build networks and, and computing in that way, you know, but it's a national security problem. Clearly, the Chinese and the Russians and the North Koreans and the Iranians recognized it. Um, just we have been, democracies have been very slow because of globalization and the Internet to realize how vulnerable uh, it makes us. Well, you know, you had written in your book that you felt that China is working on a Ponzi scheme, and you have a feeling that it may start to implode. When it does, it's going to rattle our economic markets throughout the world. Uh, but you seem to feel that something's going to give real soon. Well, I do think if we continue to keep the pressure on them, uh, they need dollars. They need dollars for energy. They need dollars for raw materials, and they need dollars for food. They cannot use uh, the Chinese uh, yuan to buy those things because nobody trusts the currency because it's a non-convertible, non-convertible currency. And so the way that they get dollars is they have been getting it because they had a, a trade surplus uh, that's been impacted by the tariffs. So they forced the MSCI, uh, you know, Emerging Market Index to increase Chinese equities so they get dollars that way. If we cut that off and they don't have access to dollars, they're in big trouble. They won't be able to buy the food, the energy, and the raw materials they need. And so they can't just organically grow their economy. So this is this is one of the issues where I think if we – if we hold true to protecting Americans and protecting to our institutions, then you're going to see um, a lot of those are big banks who've lent hundreds of billions of dollars to China to build real estate, you know, with, where they have dozens of ghost cities. We're going to find that all of they're going to have to do a restatement on their on their um, balance sheet because they're carrying all these bad loans to China. Well, you you have you point out in your book the problems that you see with China and how they've gotten their fingers into everything and how our daily life can be affected by what they are doing here and now. Uh, but you also offer solutions at the end of the book. So it's not all doom and gloom, uh, but you do say that we're on the right path if we can hold their feet to the fire, hold them accountable, have the SEC start to treat them like any other stock issued on the on the market. Then we're going to see things change, and you're correct. We have to keep tariffs in place permanently because as soon as we remove them, then you're going to see the other face of China turn around and again start all over again. Yeah, and it is true. We really have everything that we need to to really recapture um, the glory days of um, you know where America was really growing and people had jobs uh, and they had health benefits and they had retirement benefits that went along with those jobs. It's really about focusing on our country, protecting our people and investing in our people and protecting, you know, our institutions from the predatory nature of the of the Communist Party, focusing on, you know, democratic principles, rule of law, civil liberties, human rights and free trade 
not free trade to the exclusion of those values. If we do that and we force our allies and partners to get back into the strong embrace where we collectively work as democracies to promote those values, then the world's going to start to, to, to work better again. It is an excellent book. I recommend um, read called Stealth War uh, by Brigadier General Robert S. Spaulding. I also have up on the show page, because a lot of people listen to the, uh, in the archive to the podcast later on, your website that they can reach you at Armchair Economics, econo- teeth in backwards today, Armchair Economics. Dot io. It's a great site, too. I liked it. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Spaulding, it has been a lot of fun, and I enjoyed the book. And uh, we welcome you back anytime. Thanks so much. And, and people can follow me on Robert underscore Spaulding at Twitter, S-P-A-L-D-I-N-G. And I'm going after the Chinese Communist Party every single day. God bless you for the hard work you do And you already got me following you Thank you so much Thank you General Uh, Thank you All right That was was a lot of fun there And I'm just waiting for our next guest to to call in Um, Michael Barone Should be calling in in a few moments But he does give us a lot of Information uh, about What is going on and explains what A lot of things that are happening here today the NBA is that's just the tip of the iceberg. It goes so much even further. Do you remember, Ryman, a number of years ago, uh, the Chinese had actually bought the Empire State Building, and they would light it up with certain colors to celebrate certain Chinese uh, 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 milestones. Do you remember that? Yep. That yeah, was do, propaganda yes. back then. <laughs> yeah. But well, I think what really. Uh, what really scares me, uh, really concerns me, and I and, uh, you know, alluded to it in, in my comments to him, but when I get in front of uh, audiences and I make my case about this asymmetric warfare, that they truly are in war with us, we just don't see it because of the way that they're doing it and that how, um, how important it is um, that you have all the resources because if you got the resources – you know, you're, it doesn't matter if you have, um, like I said, if you have all these F-35s. And the example I give is, you know, as Americans, you know, we, we love to be on the front pages. We love to, to show the flag. We, you know, we love our military. But the, one of the stories I say is that, you know, we look at what we're doing in Afghanistan. You know, you gave uh, an honor to a guy that got, to, you know, was recently killed. And we, we hate to see, see those, hear those stories, but we always want to honor our men. I point out the fact that while we're dropping bombs in Afghanistan, while we're trying to you know, do the kinetic side of the house, what are the Chinese doing? What most people don't realize is that there's an estimated $1 trillion worth of rare earth metals in Afghanistan. So what the Chinese are coming into these communities, I mean, they're, they live in the 5th century, the Afghanis, they live in, a, in the 5th century. So they're not interested in, you know, all they're interested in is more sheep and more goats. And I really mean that. And so these Chinese are coming in. These guys don't have a clue what rare earth metals are. So the Chinese are just coming in and say, hey, we want to dig a hole in the ground. Whatever we pull out, we want to keep it. Oh, by the way, we'll pay you so you can buy all the sheep and goats you want. And these these tribal leaders are thinking, yeah, sure. My life hasn't changed in uh, you know uh, four centuries, and I'm not looking for it to change. That sounds good to me. 
and the Chinese are working in the background, pulling out all the resources for themselves while we're on the front lines, you know, really doing the work that gets us shot where the Chinese are in the back pulling out these resources. And if they were to ever corner the market on rare earth metals, they've been that pushing for that for the last decade. It would be a scary world because that's where all of your future innovation is going to come is from these rare earth metals, and they're called rare earth for a reason. And the the Chinese are moving in in, uh, in all these different corners of the world to to pull that to their side. And if they've got it and we don't, they're going to have a leg up. And it's gonna it's gonna be a scary world on the resource side. And I really believe that. Well, why are rare earth metals so important? I know this, that the general speaks about it in his book, Stealth Wars, but it's vitally important to us to realize the value of them. Right. Um, well, if you look at a periodic chart, there's only one small section on the periodic chart that is dedicated to the rare earth metals, and they have qualities. These metals have qualities that no other metals have. And every phone, like the phone that you're on, the phone that I'm on right now, they have rare earth metals in them because of their uh, uh, conductive uh, properties, uh, the ability to conduct um, frequencies or electricity, and that that you can just have small amounts of them, and that they they do very, they do really do incredible things in the world of electronics. And um, you know, one of the stories that, uh, one of the points that I make when I'm I'm talking to in front of uh, when I give them my speeches, I point out to them that we really did the same thing in World War II. Uh, there is a metal uh, that makes steel very strong. It's chromium. And we knew that when um, World War II started, the, the Japanese did not have chromium. So therefore, they could not make really strong steel. Well, you know what? When you're building battleships, you want really strong steel. And we had great access to chromium. And so when uh, we started uh, the war, the the Japanese only made one major battleship from 1941 when they attacked us to 1945. They didn't have the chromium. They didn't have the resources to do it. So we're we're pumping out ships, you know, by the – thousands and thousands day after day because we had all the resources. We knew they didn't have the resources. It was just a matter of attrition that as the war progressed, we're building, we're getting bigger. They're, every ship we sink of theirs, they're getting less and less because they don't have the ability to, to, to make them because we had the chromium and they didn't. So rare earth metals is the same way because now we're in the age of you know electronics where it's really cyber uh, warfare is where the, the, the real battlefield is. And and we use nothing but rare earth metals in that area. And and I'm telling you, Annie, if they've got the corner on all that, it's going to be World War II all over again. They're going to be building all the electronics that they want. We're not going to be able to because they've got all the rare earth metals just like we had all the chromium in World War II. And that's why he talks about in his book, and that's why I bring it up in front of uh, my audiences when I talk because it really is asymmetric warfare. They're already at war with us. Most people in America just don't realize it. Well, he had mentioned in the book also these ghost cities. Um, But even though these cities are currently empty, China is gearing itself up in manufacturing to such a scale. They'll end up using these cities to house the workers. So there is a method to their madness. You know, 
either their economy can be collapsed, which if Trump keeps these tariffs in place, if the SEC goes on his recommendations and starts to hold the Chinese uh, IPOs and other offerings to a higher standard, the same standard that we use for our companies, uh, then we can help collapse their their economy. Uh, but, Ryman, we've got our next guest in calling in on the line. Awama, welcome uh, to the show. He is the managing editor for the Washington Examiner, the alternative to that rag, the Washington Post, Michael Barone. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? Hey, it's nice to be with you. Um, I never describe the Post as a rag, but uh, there are many newspapers <laughs> within the Washington Post, and some of them are real good. Others... Well, we're going to have uh, another guest on after you, John O'Connor, who has gone after the Washington Post in his book. But you've got a new book out, which is great. I've read it. I've enjoyed it. It's How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And it is kind of an eye-opener because you always think of the Republican Party being for smaller government, but that wasn't always true. At one point, there was a little bit of a reversal. Uh, that's right. I mean, if you to go back to the beginning of the Republican Party in 1854, that's 165 years ago. It's the third oldest political party in the world. Uh, they were for expanding the uh, role of the federal government. They were particularly concerned about having uh, slavery prohibited in the territories, and uh, then they exerted, um, under when they elected a president, Abraham Lincoln, he exerted all the powers of the presidency, and uh, as his Democratic opponents said, even more uh, powers than the Constitution granted him, and, and uh, pursued a civil war to uh, quell the rebellion of the southern states, and uh, did so successfully. The Republican Party, after the Civil War under President Grant, tried to use federal government, including federal troops, to enforce equal rights for black people in the South. It was an interventionist party. It believed in the Homestead Act, giving people uh, 640 acres if they worked it for five years, cultivated crops, uh, subsidizing transcontinental railroad, and the tariff, the Republican Party, was uh, an activist party in many respects. Democratic Party was more of, was for free trade. They tolerated slavery in the South, the saloon in the North. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because under uh, President Lincoln, it was the largest growth of government under any previous president. Well, that's right, because you're trying to quell a... a a rebellion, as President Lincoln called it, and uh, that takes, you know, it, it, we we had 600,000 Americans died in that war in a country of some 30 million. We've got 10 times the population of that today. The equivalent today, demographically, would be six million people dead. Um, it was, you know, that was big government. Now, it's funny because you write in the book, in your introduction, uh, that you've been following history ever since you started reading about it, you know, and the political parties since a kid. And I remember watching you on the Sunday shows. I'm trying to remember. I thought you were on Brit Hume. I, I just little bell in the back of my I've head. I've done many things with Brit head. Hume and Fox News. And uh, for a while, I did McLaughlin Group. 
Yeah, that that one also. Yes. So I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, But why is it that we always just maintained two political parties? We've never been able to successfully have a third political party. Well, there's structural reasons. The Electoral College discourages the emergence of a third party, the single member legislative district similarly. But it's my argument in this uh, book, How the American how America's political parties change, that there's also something fundamentally in the character, the differing character, personality, DNA of each of these two old political parties um, that makes them appropriate vehicles for the large majority of voters in what has always been a culturally, regionally, a religiously, economically diverse country. So the Democratic of the Republican Party, founded in 1854, has always been centered around a coalition, a constituency, a core constituency that's made up of people that are considered by themselves and others to be typical Americans, but who are never by themselves a majority. They have to win more votes in order to win office. The Democratic Party, since its foundation in 1832, has been a coalition of outgroups or people that are considered atypical Americans in some way. Uh, When those outgroups can get together and unite and coalesce, they can be a majority of the country. Uh, When they... um, Uh, When they disagree and fight among themselves, they can be a disorderly rabble, uh, as they were in 1924 when they took 103 ballots at their national convention to nominate a candidate for president. But um, even as the parties have changed on issues, the Republicans originally were protectionist for tariffs, then they... By the 1970s, they're the free trade party. The Democrats are more protectionist. Now with President Trump, the Republicans are somewhat more protectionist again. So they change views on policy in light of seeking political gain or trying to um, you know, succeed in propagating their philosophical ideas about government, um, which change over time and circumstance. Um, but the basic character remains the same. Yeah, we have the Republican Party that wants to adhere more to the Constitution, as well as where you have the Democratic Party trying to push for a democratic rule and not a republic, a majority rule versus, as you mentioned, the Electoral College. And we see this with the National Popular Vote Movement to destroy the Electoral College to allow a democracy and no longer a constitutional republic. Well, you can... You know, you've got some of these Democratic states that have voted to um, have their electoral votes cast for the party that wins the national popular vote, even if they're not ahead by in electoral votes as have been as the way that they've been allocated in the past. Um, Here's a prediction about that. The first time the popular vote favors the Republicans, but the electoral vote favors the Democrats, these states are not going to follow through. They're going to vote Democratic uh, and elect a Democratic president. And we've come close to that situation in a number of cases. The Electoral College hasn't always favored uh, the Republican Party, and it may not always favor the Republican Party in the future. Uh, really didn't for George W. Bush. Uh, you know, Bush got 286. He got, when Bush got 51% of the votes for re-election, he got 286 electoral votes. When Obama got... Uh, 51% of the popular vote for re-election, he won um, 332 electoral votes. So the Electoral College was working for the Democrats then. 
um, they they're not going to follow through on principle. Um, you know, they they will go for the victory instead. Well, I know there's a couple of states that had passed their resolutions for following the national popular vote that are now trying to reverse them. I know I think it's three states that are trying to reverse it and take it back off their books, which is a glimmer of light. There is a glimmer of light that we might say the republic. But your book is very interesting and outlines the ideals of the two parties and how they have had some changes, but yet they essentially stay pure to their original purpose, where the Republican Party was born out of abolition, or as I say, a party born out of God, you know, to help free people and remain constitutional. Well, that's right. They were, in 1854, they had not come out for abolition. They came out for limiting slavery in the territories. They were operating in a political way, but many of the people in the party were sincerely wanting to abolish slavery if they felt that it was going to be politically possible. And of course, in the course of the Civil War, and when the North, uh, you know, when John Robert E. Lee's invasion of the North was quelled in Antietam, Maryland, in September 1862, the, uh, the, the highest casualty count, uh, death count of American uh, troops at war in history on that day, uh, President Lincoln uh, decided that uh, it was time to uh, pro- call for abolishing slavery in the Emancipation Proclamation. And that was limited, but by 1865, we got the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery in the United States. Well, it's funny because as I was reading your book, you know, I live here in South Carolina, home of, you know, uh, pitchfork Pat Tillman, uh, who ended up forming the Red Shirts, leading to the KKK and the suppression of the black vote here in the South. You know, they also came up with what they called the Garvey Plan. The idea was that every single white male would be able to control the vote of at least three black men, which caused the South to vote heavily Democratic for the longest time. And, and if you come up through history, the first actual civil rights legislation was under a Republican Congress uh, formed in, uh, started in 1865, the original civil rights movement, which was yep. then overturned by a Democratic Party in 1895, I believe is the correct year, only to be brought back again in the 1950s by the Republicans and usurped and taken over by LBJ to claim it as a Democratic issue, when in truth, it was always a Republican issue. Well, it had been a Republican issue, certainly in the 19th century, and you have uh, 1889, 1890, uh, Congressman Henry Cabot Lodge, Massachusetts, is proposing a force bill to um, apply the, you know, the, the force, use, use of federal force and necessary federal troops to enforce black rights. Um, the other Republicans decide that, uh, gee, they only have time for so much legislation and they wanted to pass the Sherman Antitrust Act and um, Cabot Lodge's force bill kind of uh, got lost in the shuffle. But, um, you know, I think you have to give, you know, there are so many serious Democrats in the 20th century who did strongly support Civil Rights Act. But it is also a stated fact that the civil rights legislation of the 1957, 60, and of course the 64 bill, most of the opponents um, were Democrats. 
Uh, it is an excellent book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. We've, we've got Michael Barone. I have a guest co-host on with me, uh, Captain Ryman Shope, retired. Uh, Ryman, I know you have questions for uh, Michael Barone here. Well, Michael, if you could just uh, maybe give us a little bit more detail on um, – and just kind of back me up on my facts here, but – uh, the previous party in America that was uh, the opposite of the Democratic Party was the Whigs, and that the Whig Party really collapsed after the Mexican War because at that time the Whig Party was the Peace Party, the Democratic Party was the War Party, and so the Whigs didn't want us to go in uh, in, in war against Mexico. But then when we won so uh, decisively, then the Whigs collapsed after that, and the Democratic Party kind of ran the show up until – uh, 1854, when they all coalesced around abolition uh, or, or the abolition thought, and then later on uh, freeing of the slaves. Am I right on my facts there? Well, uh, pretty much. I think that uh, you know it's a complicated story and going over all the uh, history, but basically um, the Whig Party was divided on legislation that uh, came after the um, Mexican War and after the United States obtained what they then called the New Mexico Territory, the Utah Territory, uh, and California, which became a state in 1850, a free state, not a slave state. Um, But, you know, there was the um, Wilmot Proviso, which one of the Democrats from Pennsylvania wanted to prohibit slavery and the Whig Party was split there. Uh, one of the problems for the Whigs is that about half their representatives in Congress were from the South. They were commercially minded people from the South. And many of the Whigs from the North, like William H. Seward, U.S. Senator from New York, former governor, were people who were um, strongly anti-slavery by conviction and trying to get as much anti-slavery legislation as they uh, politically could. And the Whig Party disappeared. You also have the emergence of the American Party, which is an uh, anti-immigration party. You have the emergence of the prohibition cause. You've got the state of Maine voting for prohibition of alcohol, for example. And so there's a lot of churning and so forth. The Republican Party is founded by meetings in Minnesota, uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan in 1854. They win a lot of seats in the 1854 Congress. Um, and basically the prohibitionists and the American party are sort of squeezed out of the equation by the Republican party. And the Republican party started off as a North only party. Abraham Lincoln won 54% of the votes in the free states and the popular votes from the free states in the 1860 election. And, uh, he won the electoral votes of almost every one of those states with over 50% of the popular vote. Uh, in the slave states, he got 2% of the vote. Um, people ask me sometimes, uh, you know, have we ever seen such division in the United States? Have we, have we ever seen so much vitriolic statements and people being fiercely opposed to each other politically? And my answer to them is if you want my answer to that question and, this is relevant in South Carolina, you might take a trip to a place called Fort Sumter. (laughs) Where where the Civil War started. Yes, we have had uh, discord in American politics before. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've taught for four years at the National War College, and uh, 
my elective was the Civil War, but we, we I taught it from a perspective of what was going on politically um, that got us yep. to that point. So it wasn't about tactics. It was more about politics, and that's where I – uh, uh, yep. Had studied about what went on in the Mexican War, and that kind of laid the seeds for what was coming up in the 1860s. And when you talk about the, the the division in the country, I point out about bloody Kansas. I said, you know, if you read about what was yep. going on at that time, you had this big divide between the abolitionists and the pro-slavery. And you know, if if there were people that was going up to pro-slavery families and going, you know, do you support slavery? Yeah, and they're killing the father, the son, and and the the wife and the kids, yeah. and then, but the very next day, the same thing was happening. They're walking into to homes going, are you an abolitionist? Yeah, and they're killing all their families, and of all the studying I've done, no one has ever held accountable. That's why it was called Bloody Kansas. They're like, okay, we killed an abolitionist family yesterday. We'll kill a, a pro-slavery family there tomorrow. We'll see how that works out, and that was what really kind of floored me. It's like, no one's ever held accountable for this. It's like, well, that's what we do out here in Kansas, and eventually, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. So when people say, "Hey, has there ever been divisive?" like you just said, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, read what was going on in the 1850s, uh, leading up to the Civil War." And there was, it was definitely you were either on one side of that cause or the other, and there was a lot of bloodshed going on before we ever started in 1861. Well, that's exactly right, and. Uh... It's you know, and this was over a matter of uh, of serious principle about a very fundamental issue. Uh, the thrust of American historians when I entered college back in the early 1960s was still um, the Civil War was a blunder. These people just failed to come up with a compromise, and they should have been able to compromise easily over slavery. And the trend among the historians at that point was. Uh, started to say, no, actually, that's wrong. This was a fundamental disagreement over something of very considerable importance. Um, you know, the, the, the Southern Democrats and some of the Northern Democrats, like Stephen Douglas, said, well, you know, if the liberty involved is the liberty to own somebody else's property, the liberty to buy a slave um, and hold him to bondage. Uh, Abraham Lincoln took a principled exception to that view, and um, it was a very fundamental issue and one that uh, proved not capable of uh, of a compromise. Um, a house divided against itself cannot stand, as Abraham Lincoln said, and instead, uh, uh, it, it you know, it 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 had this terrible war, as he called it in his second inaugural speech. So. Um, today's political disputes, while serious, don't rise to the level of the 1850s. Yeah, didn't Lincoln also no, see the problem with that democratic philosophy of, uh, you know, of owning slaves was that uh, you, know, you work, I eat? <laughs> didn't he say that, and that was the problem with it? Well, that's right. The idea was that, uh, that slave labor competed unfairly against free labor, so the argument that Republicans made in the North was, look, you may not like black people very much, but they're going to take the food out of your mouth because it's all going to go to the slave owner. And uh, they'll employ the slaves who are cheaper rather than a free man like you uh, and being able to make money and raise yourself right. up in the world as Lincoln yeah. himself did. Yeah, I worked well, closely Michael with one is... of the professors there who was a uh, – I just want to make one more comment, Andy. I'll turn it over back to you. But I was uh, you know, teaching there at the National War College. I worked really closely with one of the professors there who he 
was really in depth into the political history of our country. Um, you know, he, has, he had a, he had a PhD, and so I was doing all my research uh, preparing to teach this uh, Civil War class, and I came across this description of what the Whigs believed, you know, before they collapsed. And I came into his office one day, and I said, you know, I know for a fact I'm not a Democrat, and a lot of things that the Republicans do kind of aggravate me. But I was studying last night. I think I finally figured out where I fit in. I think I'm a Whig. And he looked at me, and said, Ryman, I've known I've known that about you for the last two years. The first time I ever met you, I was thinking <laughs> in my head, I think he's a Whig. He just doesn't know it yet. Well, you're, you've been spotted as a Whig, so I think that you need to come out of the closet and admit that to everybody. <laughs> That's why I'm well, on Andy's show. That... I'm on Andy's show to come out of the closet, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Michael, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Your book is How American Political Parties Change and How They Don't. You're the senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, as well as a resident at the American Enterprise Institute. People can find you by going to the WashingtonExaminer.com, and they can find your book up on Amazon. I'm holding it before the camera so everyone can see. I actually read it because I got all these little tons of little post-it notes. <laughs> oh, great. And pencil, out, pencil underlines. I don't put ink in the paper in the books. <laughs> but, Michael, it has okay. been a pleasure, and I'll look back anytime. Well, it's a pleasure being with you, and thanks for having me on. Thank you, you, Michael. All right, Michael Barone, check out his website uh, where he is the senior uh, political analysis at the Washington Examiner, as well as getting his book. And we've got our next victim up on the the line. Now, I had a blast reading this book, and it reminded me of all the reasons why I don't like the Washington Post. I want to welcome aboard John O'Connor. His book is called Postgate, and it is uh, interesting because it brings back all the information about what was going on with Watergate, and he was the attorney for Deep Throat. Welcome aboard, uh, John. Hey, uh, good to be here. Yeah. You know, there was there was first time I ever saw Bob Woodward on TV. I took an instant dislike to him, and I thought maybe it was just me. Maybe there was just something, but I sensed something about him. And I always felt like Carl Bernstein was the guy that just kind of around was like the Me Too guy right behind him. Uh, what you exposed in your book just reaffirmed everything I thought of the man. You know, um, he's you know Bob's <clears throat> Bob's very wary of uh, you know the the hand that feeds him. I'll say that I don't think he's really that political. I think what happened in Watergate was. He had this great source that kept him on the case, and that was Mark Felt. And he would have gone back to the municipal desk where he was. He was a municipal crimes reporter in, in D.C., but he had cultivated Mark Felt. And so they kept him on. Uh, Bob could not write well, and so they uh, – in fact, the, the joke was he wrote English as a second language. That was the joke in the newsroom. Uh, so they brought in Carl Bernstein, who is his scribe, his amanuensis, so to speak. And that's how the team formed, and then they had the advantage of Mark Felt. Uh, they later cultivated other lower-level FBI guys to get some of the street stuff, but the overall uh, status of the case they got from Mark Felt. But what I would say is this, that had his editors wanted to tell the whole truth, I think – 
Woodward and Bernstein would have done it, especially Woodward would have done it. If that was in his interest, he would have done it. So I, you know, I sort of in my book, I take a little of the blame off of him, even though his actual reports were uh, omitted a lot of stuff and really concealed very important facts. I blame it. I give the moral blame to his editors. Uh, they're the ones who ran things. They're the ones who did uh, who did this. Now later on, when Bob Woodward became a managing editor, as I point out in my book in one of the last chapters, when he had a chance to come in and comment on Gordon Liddy's book in a truthful fashion, he did not do that. So his hands are not completely clean on this. Uh, he kept covering up Watergate. Liddy's book didn't come out till 1980. Uh, he said a lot in it that would have would be a test for whoever reviewed it uh, regarding their honesty. And uh, Woodward uh, reviewed Liddy's book, and as I point out in my book, he gave the public a very false account about what what would what what Liddy said that was uh, that was of um, importance. So. Um, so, yeah, so he can be blamed, but I put most of the blame on the editors. You know, the great Ben Bradley knew all about this, and I, I like Ben Bradley. He always seemed like a good guy but uh, personally, but, uh, but, but boy, uh, he, he's the guy that called the tune here. Well, now, everyone, I grew up living Watergate. You know, it was on the news every single day. Oh, which reminded me, I had something special just for you. I, I have it keyed up. I wanted to play it just before bringing you on air, but I'm going to take the time just to take a minute to play it for you now. This will bring back memories. Yes, we're Haldeman and Ekman, Mitchell and Dean. The way we've been treated is really obscene. To think that a bug worth hardly a shrug could end up by getting us tossed in the jug. We all got the gate for no reason or rhyme. You'd think we'd committed some horrible crime. Our minds may be dirty, but our hands are clean. We're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell and Dean. Does that bring up memories? <laughs> it really does. It really does. It was a very big time in our culture, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would get dressed to go to school every morning, listen to Don Imus in the morning, and he would play this nonstop. So you'd be walking to school with a song playing in your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, the irony of it is, the irony of it is, while they're accusing Nixon of all these lies and and the other guys of lying and covering up Watergate, uh, these guys were doing the exact same thing, more so, because they were doing it every day. And they were telling people, by the way, we're we're exposing this, we're telling you the truth. Well, they, they were doing a masterful job of covering up. Uh, now I'm not. Uh, by the way, I'm not saying Nixon's. Uh, you know, Nixon and the guys didn't didn't obstruct justice. They did. There were there was a crime, at least two crimes, I think, that were probably proven. One clearly, and probably another one regarding the hush money on Nixon. But the but my point is, is the public didn't get all the information because the Post uh, uh, only focused on Nixon and they didn't focus on other things that maybe would would make people realize that this was not really a campaign uh, uh, activity, this break-in. It had nothing to do with the campaign, other than the fact that there was some ready cash available from Republican donors. But uh, this thing was uh, 
low-level White House uh, job carried out probably at the behest of the CIA. And that's my point in there, and I explained to people how to – John Dean is out there preaching to everybody now about uh, you know what a wonderful guy he is, and he's really right in the middle of this whole whole deal. So I think when people read this book, they'll realize how the media can really greatly misshape the truth and uh, and really get get mob action going. I mean, I was one of the people that was just yelling and screaming. I was a prosecutor at the time, and even though the Nixon administration had appointed me, I was there yelling and screaming for him to be ousted. I walked down. I was in Washington at the time, and I walked down to the White House to – see the helicopter lift off. There are a bunch of young U.S. attorneys, as I was, uh, going to school down the street, and they took a break so we could all see the president resign, every one of us and a Nixon appointee, none of us in any way objecting to the fact that he had to go. And yet uh, the irony of it is, you know, here we were fairly sophisticated, and yet we didn't know that we were being had here to some degree, that there was a public discussion that was being muted. It's really... It's really just a shame, and I think what one of my points is, and I think that I think a lesson was learned. Uh, you, you will get wealthy. Movies will be made about you. You can have a bestseller. You'll be prominent. You'll be known as a political figure, and all you have to do is go get somebody, target somebody. If you have to commit fraud, you commit fraud. And that's really the lesson that was learned in Watergate. I hate to say it. I hate to be that crude about it, but that's really what my book really uh, really says. Well, you know, you you were the attorney for uh, Deep Throat, and no one knew for many, many years who Deep Throat was, and it was a tightly kept secret. Um, but you ended up, through your book, and you explained the, the methods that you used to determine who it was and narrow it, and then get directly in contact with him and saying, are you or are you not? And the gentleman that you That's got right. in contact's name was Mark Felt. Right. Right. And I knew he was deep throat in 1977. And one of the questions I come up with in the book is uh, here I was clearly identifying him. And I thought the clues could prove that Woodward had in the book could prove him three times over as being Mark Felt. And I thought, you know, he's supposed to be a good friend of Woodward's. Uh, did, Did Felt authorize this? The only motive I could see for Felt authorizing it was to get a piece of the profits. And I thought, well, it sort of doesn't fit in with my view of Felt, who I looked at as fairly idealistic and not monetarily oriented. But I said, why else would Felt uh, allow this? And I assumed that Woodward would not print anything about Deep Throat without Deep Throat's consent. Well, it turned out I was right. uh, But as I explained in the book, I'm (laughs) – uh, Woodward didn't follow through on his agreement with his source. Uh, so I go through that whole thing. Uh, but I could find out, I could tell from this that Mark was deep throat, and I knew why he didn't want to come out. That was very obvious even from the book. And so I asked when I realized that I knew his grandson, I asked the grandson to please get in touch with his mother to in turn set up an appointment with Mark. And I went up and I started pushing his buttons and telling Mark what a hero I thought Deep Throat was and how he kept our system of justice clean and how – and then I changed it from the third person to the second person. I said, so, Mark, if you come out and if you tell your story, 
then you can tell it before you die and before Woodward comes along and tells it. And he wasn't fighting me. He didn't admit it that day. Uh, but his grandson and his daughter just about fell over because they realized the way their father was and grandfather were, was reacting to me that he really was deep throat. I mean, he had always denied it to them, and he had denied it vehemently. And so now here he was talking to me, nodding his head when I talk about Deep Throat being a hero. Uh, I I thought I was letting, just from looking in his eyes, I felt I was letting a man out of prison uh, because I was telling him that the world would appreciate what he did for precisely the reasons that he did it, that I knew he did it. but but the deeper question that I bring up to you is, why did Woodward put all these things in the book uh, if, if he was really protecting Mark? And we go on from there, and there are other revelations that come from that uh, that uh, finally got me curious. After a while, I was very curious about whether the Post had accurately reported on uh, Watergate. So I went out and got 3,000 articles that the posted published about Watergate and they're very hard to dig up they're very hard to uh, to make copies of or to get off of the web of the website uh, the uh, interestingly but when you compare those to things known which is a very laborious task uh, I, I you know I, I, I could prove in spades that uh, the post did not tell everybody what they knew so uh, it's it's very disappointing what I found very touching is your interaction with the family and how you worked with them all along uh, because she was trying to put her kid through uh, college, trying to come up with tuition. And, you know, her father was slowly, you know, succumbing to dementia and you were trying to find ways in which to get a book published so that he can get the royalties from it because Woodward kept on promising him something was going to be done. And Woodward just strung the whole family along the whole long time. You see, what bothers me is here you have not only Woodward getting wealthy and famous and so forth and enabled to to publish his bestsellers after this and a star in the movie, and uh, the Post got wealthy and the Post made billions off of this as their profile was increased from a second-tier rag to a, to a world-esteemed newspaper. All these people made tremendous money, and when it came time, to really do right by Mark Felt, um, they did not do that. Here, Woodward is facing, I'm a pro bono attorney. He knew that. He knew these people weren't paying me. And he knew the family, uh, Joan was working three jobs to try to get her pay off college debts. Mark's sitting there in his little garage apartment, and uh, the guy could really use a little glory. I mean, after all, he really suffered for his heroism. And yet, you know, Woodward and the Post really just sort of, you know, like you say, strung us out. And then they then they were upset. They were upset when I published that article without their consent. Um, and, of course, I had trouble publishing a Vanity Fair article because Woodward would not uh, agree with me that he was deep throat. People were afraid to publish. I had a couple publishers who I went to the altar with but because of uh, – Woodward's failure to name uh, Deep Throat to agree with me that I was right, um, the publishers were afraid to take the chance. So there we are. Uh, We can't publish it. Finally, I got something published in Vanity Fair, which took some doing. Uh, And luckily, they're privately owned, so they could uh, 
take more of a chance than a publicly owned company where everybody was afraid they were going to be committing fraud or, you know, lose their jobs. So it was very, very difficult. And that difficulty came from the post and from Woodward. Um, and so here, here's this nice little family and look what happens. Uh, if, if they had their way, he would have died without anybody, uh, you know, giving him his glory. The glory was what the family wanted. They wanted to see their granddad get a little applause and um, and enjoy it with him while he's alive. And hopefully, uh, you know, we're real frank about it, hopefully get a little money for some tuitions <laughs> that Joan was, Joan was working three jobs to pay off. Uh, so they're not unlike any other American family. I'm not, you know, I mean, there's so many families that have tough times, but this is one of them that guys should have gotten a few cents for – what the guy did uh so it's 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 a real interesting story and you know i hope uh uh i hope you liked it i thought uh you know i, I hope it's something that's interesting it interests me because i've been a fan of this ever since i've been a student of it ever since the the story broke in 72 yeah oh uh, it's something that we have followed uh for quite like i said i grew up under it uh, so, yeah, very familiar with the story. But you bring out a lot of other things that the Post didn't really publish, that maybe there was an alternative uh, scenario going on involving the CIA, a hotel with prostitutes, and some high-placed politicians. And these are all things you address in your book. Right, right. I do not. I do not try to say that uh, Nixon didn't obstruct justice in that one instance where he tried to stop the Mexican money trail investigation. But I do point out very clearly that this was a very a heavily influenced CIA operation and that the CIA had infiltrated both the White House and the CRP. And they'd done that because, ironically enough, uh, the FBI had quit cooperating with the CIA um, when they wanted to do a break-in or something or a wiretapping. if Wiretapping for national security purposes like today under FISA is perfectly legal. In those days, they didn't have FISA. They just had the good judgment of the FBI. The CIA could not do it in America. Only the FBI could. Well, Hoover in 19, around the late 1960s realized that maybe it's a good idea if he didn't do this, uh, that all the people in the country wouldn't understand the national security exception to the Bill of Rights. You just had on Michael Barone, I believe, talking about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln freed the slaves, as we know, but he felt when he was elected he could not free the slaves. He was not constitutionally able to do it on executive order. However, once the Civil War started, bingo. He had, he had his national security exception to the Bill of Rights to say, look, the slaves are helping the war effort. I'm freeing them. And that was his excuse. He always wanted to free them. But he used the war as an excuse to free the slaves because he had national security powers. So my point is only this, that it's always been recognized that uh, national security can trump the Bill of Rights if it's true national security. If Hitler visited New York during the war, of course, the president could just, and before war was declared, the president could say, shoot him. And that's okay. That's not illegal. The president said it. So what the CIA was trying to do was trying to do a bunch of domestic operations for which they could claim the tincture uh, of 
White House approval. So if later on somebody caught them, they could say, oh, the White House approved this. They broke into Francis Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Well, that was really a CIA job. You know, they told the White House that they would bring back files for him, but really the whole thing was set up by the CIA. Everything was supplied by the CIA. Uh, the CIA never gave the White House any Ellsberg's records. They kept them for themselves. So I have a lot of things like this in my book that talk about what the CIA was up to. And it's very clear now that a lot of the story of Watergate was intelligence agency abuse. But because the Post did not cover that, and, and in fact tried its best to ignore it and say just the opposite, that the CIA uh, involvement was just a false uh, exculpatory story by the Nixon administration, because of that, we missed out on an opportunity to shape up our intelligence agencies. So, um, you know, uh, and, and we started an era in which, uh, you know, basically people are looking, newspaper people, journalists, everybody's looking for scalps now. That's what we've got. We don't have full factual reporting that could help everybody in a democracy. I, you know, I don't care whose ox is gored by this. I don't care as long as you report truthfully, you know, let, let's have at it. Let's let's have all the citizens know the true facts. So, unfortunately, this was changed a lot by Watergate. Yeah, because you had everyone crying for impeachment, both Democrats and Republicans. You know, everyone asking for Richard Nixon's head on the platter. But I think that was the main purpose. They didn't have any other way to remove him from office. They had to use this and force him to resign. And what I found ironic is it was a young lawyer, Hillary Rodham, now Clinton, um, who actually wrote the basis for impeachment. She wrote the rules for impeachment, which they're attempting to use today against Trump. Well, listen, here's, here's the irony of it. She wrote a very broad uh, definition of what high crimes and misdemeanors meant. Uh, and it really was meant for things on the level of treason and bribery. It, the, the Constitution says treason, bribery, and other crimes and misdemeanors. Well, that means that it's uh, misdemeanors. They don't mean jaywalking. Uh, they mean uh, something that's really pretty serious. Uh, but interestingly, when her husband was up for impeachment, she forgot that she had written that memo, and she kept talking about the memo that Nixon had written through uh, uh, Professor Charles Allen Wright. Uh, and Charles Allen Wright had written, really, probably a more proper definition of impeachable offenses. Then she says, oh, this is, you can't impeach President Clinton for this. Uh, you read, read Wright's memo. Well, you talk about heights of hypocrisy. Hillary Clinton in 1973 uh, and four had argued that Wright was just terrible. He was lying. He, he, this, was a, this was a terrible uh, uh, memo he had written, that her, her memo was the one that counted. So it's, just, it, it's an example of how uh, there's complete hypocrisy and, and what sauce for the goose is not sauce for the gander. I mean, look today, uh, and, you know, right now there's a question, a big question about whether President Trump did a quid pro quo on foreign aid in the Ukraine in order to get this investigation. You know, it really doesn't bother me. Uh, 
you know, in and of itself, that someone would use foreign aid as a way of inducing action. Now, if it's corrupt action, that's something else. But let's put that aside. Uh, is using foreign aid as a quid pro quo something that's okay? Well, we've been doing it since the Marshall Plan in 1947. And Joe Biden, just a year ago, admitted that he had done it in the Ukraine. I was going to withhold that billion-dollar guarantee unless they did what I wanted. Well, that's okay if what he did was not corrupt. So using foreign aid as a lever is perfectly proper. My point is simply this. I'm not here to argue one side or the other that, only that let's be consistent. What's sauce for the goose should be sauce for the gander. And if someone reports that it is terrible that Trump did a quid pro quo in uh, on the Ukraine, which I think it looks like he did. You know, at least he was he was he was at least threatening it. He was threatening it. Let's put it this he's dangling dangling the possibility of of withholding the military aid, I think. But uh and I don't know all the ramifications, but it kinda looks that way. But my point is, what's the matter with that? Biden was Biden was proud of it and no no media seems to be too much bothered by the contradiction between saying what Trump did was wrong and what Biden did was right. I, I scratch my head. Well how do you how do you say that? But we have a very one thing Deep Throat told uh, Woodward was that newspapers are very shallow and superficial, and he, he detested them. Uh, and probably he could say the same thing about TV news, but at the time TV news shows didn't, weren't, weren't investigating. I think he, he could say that about TV now. At the time, uh, television news did not purport to be investigatory. Uh, but my point is uh, there's – there's a need for consistency, and we do not have uh, a media reporting and, and, and putting forth consistent standards. And that's what I think really uh, really gets the right side of the political spectrum upset, because they see this constantly. They see there's a double standard. And they also see that, that the media often lies. And uh, And so right now what we should be discussing is whether or not one issue is whether or not Biden did something wrong in the Ukraine. That's one of the issues. I'm not saying we, we should examine what Trump did, too. But we ought to be examining Biden. But right now we have the media saying, oh, he did nothing wrong. No, there's nothing to see there. Well, that's that's not true. There are, There's an issue there for the public to consider. But whichever way they come out as a, as a jury, I don't care. I just want the truth told about the fact that there are earmarks of corruption in what uh, Biden and Hunter Biden were doing. Uh, before Biden fired the prosecutor in the Ukraine or had him fired, he, you know, the real payback to Hunter Biden and Burisma was as follows. The British government seized $23 million on April 14, 2014. And the British court, and all the British court needed was some affirmation by the Ukraine that they wanted this money back, that it was looted money, and they'd send the money back to the Ukraine, to the new Ukrainian government that uh, followed the corrupt uh, oligarch-controlled, Russian-controlled government of Yanukovych. So what happens? April 18th, four days after the seizure, Burisma announces it's hired Hunter Biden. What happens after that? 
the British court never gets a statement from the Ukraine asking for the $23 million back. So pretty soon, the, well, not pretty soon, after a year, the British court said, listen, I can't wait any longer. I've been waiting for this document forever. I've got to give the money back to Burisma. I just impounded it, but I was waiting for Ukraine's statement. Sorry, bang the gavel. Here, Burisma, here's your $23 million back. Now, that's the first benefit that came from Hunter Biden's being hired. Now, nobody's explored that. Uh, what did Hunter Biden's company do? What kind of messaging that did they do to Ukraine? What happened there? It certainly looks that like, though, that they hired Biden for one reason, just to, to, to stop this kind of uh, fighting of the oligarchic uh, looting. So all I'm saying is is that the jury of public opinion has not really been given all the facts as on the Ukraine so that we can all make up our own minds. I, I, I don't care which way people come out, but let's tell everybody the truth rather than, as Anderson Cooper said the other night on the debate, oh, there's no proof at all that anything was done by Hunter or Joe Biden that was wrong. That's just not true. Any prosecutor would salivate at this case. Uh were it not for the political overtones. Well, I'll tell you this, though. I, something I picked up as I was doing my homework last night, getting ready for the show, uh, before I interviewed you on your book, which I'll mention again, Postgate, how the Washington Post portrayed a deep throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. There's a video that's starting to surface from the Ukraine and someone started to do the interpretation on it. It seems that not only did Hunter Biden receive you know, uh, money as a board officer of Burisma, but he also acted on behalf of the Ukraine as a lobbyist for which he was reimbursed or paid $900,000 above, in addition to his $50,000 a month salary. That's going to yeah. start popping out real soon. Well, that's pretty big. And let me tell you this, the $50,000 a month may be charitable to Hunter Biden because the payments, it looks like now, the payments that were made to his company were 166000 a month. Uh, he and uh, this other fellow, uh, Archer, Devin Archer, uh, were the co-owners at the time, and they got 83000 and and, and and it's many people think he got 83000 a month, but he got at least fifty a month. That's sort of been sort of stipulated, but it looks like 83. Um, and it's noteworthy also that Christopher Hines, who's the stepson of John Kerry, uh, as soon as Hunter Biden was hired by Burisma, he said, this, uh, you can't do this. He resigned. He, he got out of the company that Archer and uh, Hunter Biden were in because he knew it was wrong. Um, but yeah, so Hunter Biden's out there. It's all influence peddling. And when people say, oh, he's just using his name, people get hired for their name all the time. Yeah, that's true. If you have a company, you want a prestigious guy on it, you know, you want, you name it. You name any prestigious person, Henry Kissinger, Oprah Winfrey, everybody likes celebs on their board here and there. But that's not the same thing as having them on the board for specific corrupt activities in which you've got, uh, you know, you've got an inner uh, the inside track, and, uh, you know, so the question isn't whether Joe Biden and Hunter Biden talked about the business. Did Joe Biden know that Hunter Biden was employed by uh, by Burisma? If he did, that's all he needs to know. That's all he needs to know. 
if I gave a judge's daughter a million dollars and the, a judge who had a very sensitive case I was handling, uh, and the judge then after that ruled in my favor, wouldn't people kind of you know, think, gee, you know, maybe this guy acted corruptly, and maybe the judge and his daughter acted corruptly. That's at least a possibility there. You know, when the million dollars to the to the daughter, uh, she, where she had no skills and I had no reason to pay her other than for her father. So uh, that's that's what we're left with, and it's a very clear inference of uh, corrupt activity. So I, well, I'm John, sort of yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I was going to say, you know, your book is a, is a blueprint plan on how the media has become corrupt on it. Um going to tell people to go on to uh, Amazon to get your book, Postgate. Uh, there's a link on the show page. People can click on it and go directly there and get your book. John, I want to thank you for joining us. I've got my next victim sitting in the studio, so uh, oh, I, I love have to it. let this you is, go. And, yeah. uh, otherwise, otherwise, we'd talk for hours. This has been a great. I'm, I'm really happy I got the opportunity. You've got great um You've got great reviews on your show. Uh, people are very uh, seem to seem to have great critical approval. So it's been an honor. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Now I'm blushing. <laughs> John O'Connor, author of the book Postgate. Thank you, John, and God bless for the hard work you do. Okay. See you now. All right. Uh, Ryman, we've got our next uh, victim up, although I doubt she would call herself that, retired Jenny Sergeant Jesse Jane. Duff, U.S., M.C., hoorah. Jesse, you with us? Yes, I'm here. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I have to tell you, I'm sitting right smack in the heart of the Tri-Command. You probably would appreciate it. For a couple of miles down the road, one way, I've got the Paris Island Recruit Depot. A couple of miles the other way, I've got the Naval Hospital. And a few miles in the opposite direction, I've got the Marine Corps Air Station. I'm in the heart of the USMC here. Oh, that's fabulous. And you know you're protected. You never have to worry about a dang thing. They're right around you, and they'll whoop anybody's tail who tries to hurt you. Well, you see, this retired New York City cop can help them, too. Yeah, well, the more the merrier. I'm I'm all for people who uh, understand how to use a firearm against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, my guest co-host happens to be also retired military captain, Ryman Shove. So, Ryan, feel free to jump in. Um, I got to tell you, uh, Jesse, yesterday, uh, Amy Kramer, which uh, she knows me. Uh, she's a lovely lady. Um, she had me interview, introduce Mark Sanford when he was running for Congress. Uh, so she came down here to South Carolina, so she knows me. Um, she now has Women for Trump. She used to be with Tea Party Express, now Women for Trump, which you're she's also not a member of Trump, that. Though. No, no, no. no we're not tied together. We're not tied. Yeah, she, she has a PAC. Uh, I'm with the campaign. She's not with the campaign. It's a separate entity. To her group is actually, she's changed the name for it. Um, her Twitter handle may be Wimber Trump, but that's not the campaign's uh, Twitter handle. The campaign is not uh, linked to any group uh, called by that name. There's several groups out there, but no, the campaign advisory board uh, for is myself and about 30 other women, and uh, the campaign itself doesn't have a Twitter handle because that particular handle was taken, uh, but the campaign itself is Team Trump on Twitter. 
uh, I stand corrected. My point was being is that the Women for Trump had hosted this march all across the United States yesterday, and I participated. No, it wasn't it. Women for Trump. Uh, the only the only Women for Trump is the campaign. That's that's the confusion. That's unfortunate. Yeah, that that was a pack. And we are, we're really careful about getting that out because we want to ensure that people, when they contribute money to assist with transportation, hotels, things like that, that they recognize what is tied to the campaign and is not. Because, you know, it's very expensive to run a campaign. Um, people like myself, we travel across the country and uh, we understand. And we're, we do it for no pay, you know, also. So we want people to know what is the campaign. And that's why uh, that is an incorrect um, title. For President Donald Trump. Well, what we did when we did the March for Trump yesterday, we did it directly outside of our congressman, which is uh, Joe Cunningham. And we, in groups of two and three, would go in and we told Congressman Cunningham's staff that we did not want him to support the impeachment of Trump. Um, are you seeing a backlash now with this impeachment push? Are people finally saying, I've had enough, I'm fed up? Well, I don't think that anybody who's uh, been a Trump supporter would ever have been uh, on board with this. So the people that we really hope to uh, see getting fed up are the Democrats themselves and independent voters who have nothing to do, don't want anything to do with this big government and this mindset that they can uh, take away the opportunity for voters to duly elect who they want in office. You know, right now, uh, this is really only the, camp, the Democrats' option because they know they can't win. They know that they are basically incapable of winning this election. And so in order for them to do that, they have to try to impede the success of this president and by any means possible. Essentially, Nancy Pelosi has said the American voter will not have an opportunity to uh, cast a ballot for uh, President Trump. She wants him to be impeached so that he is not uh, able to run for reelection. And I find that to be a very weak stance for the Democrats, that this is what you have gotten to when it comes to time to run for president of the United States, your only means of trying to win is by impeaching the one that's in office. You really have no message because if you were strong, as we all know, if you have a strong message, strong dialogue to, to get this uh, country back to where they claim it's not, then you would be able to deliver that message without uh, even suggesting there should be an impeachment. But we know that Democrats can't win without it. And the fact is, is that the president is not going to get impeached. We know that his record is one of success, and we also know that this president has done everything that the American people elected him to do. You know, uh, I watched the rally last night in uh, Dallas, Texas, and, oh, man, that place was awesome, absolutely awesome. The president rocked the the whole auditorium. And then when they showed the the crowds outside, I I was happy that finally the cameras actually picked up how diverse his supporters are. Finally, for once, the cameras looked at the audience and said, this is a diverse group. Yes, you know, and it was really impressive to see the Latinos for Trump that were standing behind him. Uh, You saw African-Americans. You saw essentially Americans that were supporting this president. And it was funny to me to read some of the reports that they said, well, it wasn't a very diverse group. I thought, what in the world is this press even looking at? And what is their mindset of diverse? Because the fact is, is that if you take the percentages of the population that are minorities, they would not take up the majority of an audience anyway. It's a very unfair statement to make because when you look across that 
uh, arena, you could clearly see that there were many people of diverse ethnicities, and often Latinos cannot be necessarily seen by the color of their skin. And this is how they try to get us into the identity politics, that, you know, if you don't see a diversity of color, there couldn't be a diversity of thought, which is really insulting to those of us who know that identity politics doesn't work. Women don't think one way. We're not monolithic. Uh, African-Americans don't think one way, and nor do Asians or Latinos or any other group. Right now, this is record low unemployment for all groups across the board, Latin, uh, Latinos, African-Americans, uh, Asian-Americans, every single group, the lowest unemployment ever for women. And that really has been uh, groundbreaking, but you won't even hear the press cover it. And it's really shocking to me that here we've finally gotten unemployment well below. It's below 3.7%. I think it's now down to 3.4, 3.5. Whatever that may be, President Obama said it would take a magic wand to have the new jobs, to have this low unemployment, that, oh, you know, these were the new norms under his administration. Well, abracadabra, obviously President Trump has that magic wand. I'd like a little of that magic my way. <laughs> Just keep it coming, baby. Keep it coming. Because, you know, America is starting to have, I think Americans are starting to have hope because they are seeing that we are standing our ground uh, in different areas across the world. You know, he's got the tariffs on China and China's starting to capitulate. You know, we see time after time he has proven to be correct. But, um, one of the things that is huge blowback, and my senator, thank you, Lindsey Graham, um, is pushing on him about his withdrawal from Syria. Uh, is this going to be a huge problem? I think not, because I think Trump has already gotten Turkey to start backing down. I think he made the well, right decision, in your opinion. What, reg- yeah, regardless whether he got Turkey to back down or not, American troops were never authorized to be in Syria in a combatant role. There were over 360 congressional members uh, that voted against the president and and essentially a referendum against him for pulling troops out of Syria. (laughs) What is so insulting to me is that if they want war so badly, then why didn't they put it on the footsteps of Congress and vote on it? But they don't, and the reason they can't is because they know there's no national security means for us to be in Syria fighting. What are we fighting for? You know, when you suggest that we abandon the Kurds, that was the first insulting statement I heard because there was no agreement between those U.S. forces to stay indefinitely for the Kurds. In fact, they were never there to defend the Kurds, and the Kurds know this. This is pure manipulation of the media and the left-wing media and those that don't care for this president to go after us saying we are abandoning an ally. First of all, we're not abandoning anybody. Our role there was an advisory role with the Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, that was purely to go after ISIS, to ensure that we diminish the threat of ISIS. But President Obama had put us in Syria with no combatant role because he never got authorization from Congress to use us in a combatant role. He was using a law that was being stretched pretty thinly, I would say, that was a post-9-11 law that was authorization to use military force against an imminent attack with reference to al-Qaeda because that's who we were attacked by during 9-11. 
So here President Obama now is stretching that law to put forces in Syria to go after ISIS, but we never, ever, ever, let me be very clear, never were there in a combatant role, either to participate in the Syrian uh, civil war, which was not of our national security interest. We're never there to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, despite the fact that we know he's an evil, awful dictator. But we were not there because it was not in our national security interest other than to try to have ISIS defeated. Now, the suggestion that we abandon them, I, I say, to, say to people, so what were we supposed to do? Leave a 1,000 men there. They said, well, when President Trump pulled them out, that's why, they had, that's why Erdogan moved in. Absolutely not. Erdogan had warned that he was going to do this for some time, and it got down to it. Whether we were there or not, he was coming in. The president valued the American lives, the 1,000 men that were there or less. The 50 men that were on the border, he pulled them out of the border. Why would they be in a position of being overrun by a NATO ally? Why would we be fighting a NATO ally? Where was our national security interest? I don't understand where Congress's head is at this. If they want to fight so badly, then they have the authorization to authorize war. And the president was not going to go to them to authorize that because he knew there was no national security means to do it. I think this is another non-starter, regardless of whether whether this goes well with Turkey or not, to leave those thousand men in there would have left them there as human shields. To suggest we needed to leave them there so Turkey would not attack is basically saying that the role of these Americans on the ground was to be a human shield, and that is not why we are in the United States military. We're in the military to support and defend the Constitution against all foreign, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, not to be human shields. Oh, Ryman, Ryman, step in. Well, I just um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit there, Ghani, because I mean I definitely feel your passion about what was going on in Syria, and I'm I'm in agreement with you. I want to go back to the political discussion you had before. My gut tells me that Nancy is really not pushing for uh, impeachment because she really just wants to drag his name through the mud as long as possible. But I'm just kind of wondering if can give me some thoughts. Is there something that we're not seeing there? Is she thinking that I'm going to keep this in the news, and then in 2020 we're going to keep the House and take the Senate, and then we're going to impeach him? Is that a strategy? Because I'm just I'm, I'm waiting for <laughs> I, I Trump don't to see come in how, and say, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't see how she can take it past 2020, because at that point, I think you'd get absolute disgust. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the con- uh, House has, I'm sorry, that the Senate even has to uh, offer any resolution. They could essentially do the nuclear deal on this one and make it a non-starter. I don't expect this to go past the election, number one. They wanted to have it wrapped up by December, because what's happened is they've been screaming the impeachment uh, call, the battle cry of impeachment since he got elected. They have been going after this president for going on it's going to be three years soon. And it's the American public isn't paying attention to it anymore. Uh, those that are driving for impeachment of the president were never on his side from the beginning, nor would they ever be on his side. These are the people like your Bette Midlers and your Alyssa Milanos that have irrational cries on Twitter. These are the people that are saying, oh, the people are dying in Syria, but had he sent in forces, he would have said, how could you use American troops this way? It wouldn't have mattered what the president did to the, for those people because they will never be happy. They only focus on those things that they decide are wrong and will never focus on what he has done that is right. 
And, you know, Nancy Pelosi does not have a fighting chance on this. Otherwise, I think they would have brought it up for a vote, which she has not done. I think that they know in all of these little basement dwelling meetings they have that they don't have enough to go off of to be impressive. And maybe they could even win in the House on their votes because it is a Democratic House. But it will go to the Senate, and they all know witnesses now will be called to testify. And you're going to have to have Hunter Biden even come and talk about his shady deals. They're going to talk about how President Obama knew that this Ukrainian company was sleazy. They're going to know that Joe Biden had pretty much done a quid pro quo to the Ukrainian government, not to, uh, you're not going to get any weapons and arms if you uh, are uh, not, you know, stop investigating my, my little boy. We're going to have to talk about all of the shady deals. And I think uh, when the IG report comes out with Department of Justice, they're going to have a whole other layer of issues on their hands because we're going to see how embedded and corrupt the Democratic Party was within our own establishment, within our intelligence agencies, within the FBI at the highest levels that they were trying to undermine a duly elected president. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually a coup to undermine a duly elected president who showed up in Washington, D.C., who changed this for the better of the United States of America. And people never, ever give up power easily. They will fight for it. And that's what Nancy Pelosi and her desperate Adam Schiff, who lies out the wazoo, every other time you turn around, he's dishonest. He just was completely dishonest about everything he said about this Russia collusion. At what point are Democrats going to realize they're dealing with people that can never even give you a straight answer without it being exaggerated, manipulated, or a complete outrageous lie. Well, do you think from traveling around the uh, <laughs> yeah? Do, do you think from your uh, traveling around the uh, the nation and talking to people, do you think that uh, Nancy sees the writing on the wall and that she's going to lose the House in 2020, and that we're going to have a repeat of having the the Senate, the House, and the White House, so that Trump can maybe really get moving in in the direction that the, we want him to go? I'm not going to ever come out and act that confident because I think if we get that comfortable in our shoes, uh, we could easily have people stay home assuming President Trump will win this election. This is all hands on deck. Make no mistake. They are repeating these lies long enough that people do believe them. They have plenty of people on their side that are delusional and have Trump derangement syndrome and have had this syndrome for over two and a half years. That's not going to go away. Even I showed every bit of data that shows that this president's economy is the greatest in the history of this country. You're looking at them trying to make scandals out of Syria. If he has, um, you know, if good things are happening, as we try to stay optimistic here, that with a ceasefire we get the Kurds out of that northern area on the border there, because Erdogan has 3 million refugees inside of Turkey that have come from Syria. His goal is to get 2 million of them back in uh back into Syria. He's going to do that because it's killing his own economy. It's killing his own record as a president, and that's his goal. He doesn't give uh, two you-know-whats about uh, where those Kurds go, and he's directing most of his hostility towards the PKK, um, which has been considered a terrorist organization even by our own State Department. But Syria is another distraction. It's a shiny object syndrome. What's going to be after Syria, I don't know. Um, I don't know that you're going to get enough people to understand that this has been a deliberate collusion by their government. You've got people in my family that are Democrats, and if I were to try to spill any of this out to them, they're going to they're buckle down and shut me off. 
So I would say it's all hands on deck. We get out there. We talk about the things that are going fabulously well for this country, continuing from the lowest unemployment rate ever in the history of this uh, country, strong economy. The wall has been rebuilt. We don't or is getting rebuilt. We don't have people like Shep Smith making false accusations on national television, (laughs) calling the president a liar over and over when he was not citing accurate information. Uh, it's really going to be up to us to make this happen. Well, you know, the thing with the Kurds that you're talking about that that, that uh, you know is in the news, and I'll just speak from my own experience here. So in '91, when uh, I was deployed on the on the forestall, we had come in to kind of clean up after um, the first Gulf War. And we were – our operation was called Operation Provide Comfort, and we provided air support and uh, food supplies into the Kurds that were in northern Iraq, and they were pushing into Turkey. And Turkey had been over backwards to help us in that first Gulf War, so we got to a point where we were told, hey, we're going to stand down. There's not going to be any more flying. We're going to kind of – we're going to do some other things for about three weeks, and then – you know. Do, I didn't read a lot of news because I was deployed, and when you deploy, you don't, you don't spend a lot of time reading news, but I'm reading the message traffic that's going back and forth, and what it really came out was is that because uh, the Turks had helped us so much in, in uh, that first war, but they were ticked off that all these Kurds were pushing up into Turkey, and they just wanted us to back away so that they could go in there and kill enough of them to, to get them back across, uh, back into Iraq. And as far as I know, that's what they were doing. So this is not the first time that the Kurds have pushed into Turkey, and Turkey has pushed them back out because I was there in 91, and that's exactly what they were doing then. It just wasn't in the news because Turkey had been such a good ally for us. Well, a lot of the refugees that are in Turkey are not necessarily Kurds. Those are also Syrians. Those are people that have been pushed out by the civil war that is going on with Bashar al-Assad. You know, you've got the Sunni-Shia conflict that's going, that Iran is influencing in uh, Syria, heavy influence, because Bashar al-Assad does not like Sunni. And ISIS happens to be Sunni. Not all Sunni is ISIS, but that is one reason he was not overwhelmingly objecting to us being in his country to try to assist in defeat the uh, ISIS uh, problem that was a toxic problem for him. That was actually benefiting Bashar al-Assad. But, you know, as far as the Kurds go, people have to understand they're in four different countries. They are not based in one location. They're one of the largest uh, ethnic groups that does not actually have its own country. They're in Syria, northern Syria. They're in Iraq. They're in Iran, and they are in Turkey. They are not just exclusively in in one pocket. They have different factions of uh, Turks. Kurds, I'm sorry, uh, from, like I said, there is the YPG and there's the PKK. The PKK has the terrorist affiliation, and many of that has been trying to, we've tried to, uh, our own intelligence agencies have tried to uh, water that down while we were supporting them in defeating ISIS. But there is a problem with some of the uh, different sects of Kurds because they aren't necessarily uh, the same Kurds that we were supporting in Iraq, who had been gassed by Saddam Hussein. It's a very complex group, and often the media has failed us because they've identified them all as Kurds when they are not necessarily all of the same faith, of, uh, I should say, same uh, sects that have practiced the same ideology. I think the president, correct me if I'm wrong, had called them Marxist. Well, the fact is, is that the PKK are known as Maoists. They're of uh, not 
faith, and that's why you see often there are women fighting in combat. They have a lot of um, not Christian, not Muslim, and really of no, no faith itself. And really hardcore fighters, very hardcore fighters. We like people that want to go after kill jihadis, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to advocate for the, the same means uh, that we will, the same ends to the means. They, they, they have kind of like that. They, they don't care how to get to the end where we do. Well, you know, Jesse, I was in my research and doing the Syria and for my notes for today, I came across a couple of Christian news sites that are saying that the PKK was actually going into villages, Christian villages, and recruiting or actually forcibly drafting uh, young children into the PKK as fighters. And when I was reading these articles, you know, both sides are wrong and both sides can be right at the same time. We don't deserve to be in the middle of a civil war. Um, the, thing, the situation with the Kurds, again, I go right back to, we're not authorized to be in, um, in any kind of combat and role in Syria, period. It doesn't matter what the cause is. We can't be all of Our forces are not volunteering for our country to serve oh, and become human shields to other cultures and other ethnicities and, you know, or ethnic zones. I mean, it's very complex. What we have to be utilized for is purely our own national security measures. And I appreciate that there's a lot of, you know, good and bad cops in this. And I understand there are some curves that have been um, maybe not good players, and there's excellent Kurds who have been great players. In the end, whenever we have worked with the Kurds, we were working for the same goal. They wanted to go after ISIS as much as I, because ISIS was a threat to them. It was not as if the Kurds came to our rescue in any of these situations. They were fighting against the, they were basically the enemy of your, uh, the enemy of, wait, is it, the enemy of your enemy is our friend. You know, that was kind of the mindset. Um, but we're not always on the same page with them and we do not endorse terrorism um so but i'm gonna have to wrap up i do have another appointment that i've got waiting on me and so i'm really happy you had me on today um if you have another follow-up question that'd be great otherwise i do got to get rolling so i'm not too late for my next hit well, Jesse, we only have four minutes left to the show, so I want to thank you for uh, joining us. It has been a lot of fun, and people can reach you on your website, which is jessejaneduff.com. God bless you, Jesse, and uh, thank you for your service. Thank you so much for having a great – and have a great afternoon and a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. Okay, Gunnery bye-bye. Sergeant Jesse James – Take care. Jesse James Duff. Check her out, jessejamesduff.com. Ryman, we're down to our last three and a half minutes. Man, you told me the show's going to fly, and it did. Yeah, I was going to tell the gunny next time she comes on your show to not be so quiet and quit holding back. <laughs> She's fired up. I like her. She's all fired up. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, yeah. Well, give out your website one more time so people can go and help with your foundation. Sure. So We Can Be Heroes Foundation. Again, that is the We Can Be Heroes Foundation. It's here in Jacksonville, based out of Jacksonville. And we have the 7th Annual Benghazi Memorial coming up a week from tomorrow, 26 October, 630. You can get the tickets at the We Can Be Heroes Foundation. We're going to have great speakers this year, and we are the only group in America that has not forgotten what happened in Benghazi, and we still honor those that stood up instead of standing down. And we don't forget Benghazi, much less extortion 17. Ryman, thank you for joining us, and uh, Curtis decides not to come back. I'm getting a hold of you again. It's been so much fun. Hey, 
I, I thought it was wonderful. I really appreciate your. Uh, I mean, when I saw the general, and I saw the blue B B twos. I had to find out if we knew, knew uh, common people, and we did. <laughs> that we did. That we did. But uh, thank you for joining us. And I'm going to close off the uh, show with "Save America" by Gary Pecorell, uh out of Charleston. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.